This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. As you guys know, I made a promise to only bring companies on as sponsors whose products I actually use myself and believe in, and LifeAid is no different. I've witnessed a huge reliance on energy drinks by our population, and I totally understand we are chronically fatigued. However, sadly, I've seen the ill effects that come along with these products, whether it's the cardiac arrhythmias and chest pain, the GI distress, the anxiety. And I wanted to find a product that we could use for the same effect, but that would nourish our body instead of harm our body. And that product is LifeAid. One of the things that really bolstered my belief in it was it's the chosen sponsor from the Spartan Race and the CrossFit Games, which I think are two arenas that have contributed very, very well to the health of our nation. But they've taken the natural supplements, whether it's turmeric and chamomile, the the vitamin Bs, the the glucosamines, and they've put them in the drinks so that they each one of them has an effect. My favorite one for us, the fatigued first responder, military, medical personnel, is the Focus Aid. And they've taken the nootropic supplements. So these are supplements that nourish the brain, that, that increase brain function without hypercaffeinating it and relying on sugar. And what really appeals to me about this is A, it works. It tastes great as well, but more importantly, it works. You get this mental clarity that was amazing, but you can also unwind at the end of your shift, whether you go back to the station, whether you get off your rotation. Um, and that's important too, because not being able to sleep when you're in your recovery time is extremely frustrating. So you can access all these products at their website, which is lifeaidbevco.com, L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. 
but they wanted to reach out to you guys, our audience. And so they've offered one of two deals, either $15 off a case of LifeAid, which is a 24-pack, which brings the price down to under $2 a can. So you can work with your people in your ER or your station if you want to split it up. Um, the other thing, which actually is even better value, is the subscription, the monthly delivery that they have. You get 10% off, which brings that down even further. Both of those are also free delivery to your doorstep. So you can see there's almost a zero risk with this um, because they believe in their product. And I'm sitting here telling you because I do as well. So you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. And if you want to learn even more about this product, then listen to episode 207, where I interviewed the founder of LifeAid, Aaron Hind. Welcome to episode 247 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I'm extremely excited to welcome this week, Stephanie Crossland. Now, Steph is a good friend of mine. We worked together in Orange County Fire. She was a lieutenant paramedic. Um, she suffered a near-fatal car accident when she was rear-ended on a freeway. Uh, at the time, she had also been working as a nurse, and now she has luckily recovered from those injuries and works full-time in the hospital, um, specifically in ICU. So a very interesting perspective from the pre-hospital to the hospital setting that I think you guys are going to really enjoy. Before we get to that interview, as I always say, take a moment, go to your podcast app that you're listening to, subscribe to the show, leave a rating, five-star ratings obviously make us the most visible. Um, and then if you have anything to, to say, please leave feedback. I'd love to read that as well. Um, and on top of that, most importantly, share the show, whether it's word of mouth, whether it's email, on your social media. All I ask in return for these people telling their incredible stories is to you guys help me get those stories to all the people around the planet that need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Steph Crossland. Enjoy. So, well, Steph, I want to say welcome to Ocala. I love it here. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice. This is the place to get in the zen, the zone. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for making the drive. Um, as you know, for, I like to always start at the very beginning, and we we're just talking before we start recording, and I'm going to get you to retell a couple of stories. <laughs> um, but where were you born? And tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents So did. I was actually born in Knoxville, Tennessee, and then my mom moved me and my brother to... Michigan. So I spent a large portion of my childhood living in Michigan and around Detroit. So it's kind of interesting. I like to think I'm a classy chick, but every now and then people are like, I can tell you're from Detroit because it is a different <laughs> world, the south, um, the south and the north. And then I say I moved here probably my last year of high school. So I've been in Florida. I mean, I'm not going to age myself, but I guess I can, uh, probably over 20 years because I did my last year of high school. I vividly recall them telling me, oh, the school you're going to in Sanford is like a little bit rougher showing up the first day. And I was like, there's no metal detectors. You guys don't <laughs> have chains on the doors. What are you talking about? Because where I came from, like they lock you in, mm -hmm. you know, you live in a, you go through a metal detector. It's just like walking through doors. So it's very different, but it's, you know, but a nice adjustment. Yeah. That's I what's do. interesting about the whole, you know, aversion to armed officers in schools because yeah. of the problems. Yeah. And obviously that's not the solution. That's, it that's isn't. stemming yeah. the, the, you know, the symptoms. But if symptoms. you don't deal with broader social issues, you're going to be stuck. Like if you're not, um, you know, 
I would say offensive about it, you're only going to be stuck in reaction mode. And so this is kind of the reaction everyone has is mm-hmm. like, you got to turn things into like a president, like environment with guards yeah, because you didn't deal with like the social economical issues related to the people that are attending. Yeah. But you see, so, I mean, you saw those guards, you saw the yeah. male detectors in, in other oh, schools yeah. around the country for decades. Yes. And so. it changes the perception of how people view school. Mm-hmm. It's sad. I think yeah. It's devastating. The mindset is different. Like I, my mindset when I went to school here versus up north was even different. Like I went to school ready for whatever was going to happen, ready to be aggressive if I had to, because I was in a place where it was like, well, obviously, if we're all walking through metal detectors, they think the people here are dangerous. Yeah. So I need to be on my guard. So when I came here, I was like, y'all ain't got even, where's the resource officer? <laughs> like the resource officer is a cop. Okay. It's a very different environment. So I'm with you. I'm not so much sure that's the best learning environment because it you your mindset changes based on your environment. We all know that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an assumption. Mm-hmm. All right, so then parents, what did they do? So my dad um, lives in Tennessee. He was actually a state representative for many years in the state of Tennessee, which is people are always like, I didn't know this. I was like, it's not something I walk around telling people. Like, what is it? Um, so it's funny because my mom was very not involved in politics at all. Um, and so I got to see kind of like both sides. And I like to think I'm like a little bit more middle of the road because I got to see both sides, like people really involved in the activism and deeply entrenched in the politics and I had no taste for it which drove my dad nuts because he was always like why don't you you know when you go to college you should do something in like political science you know you could do the medical field still and do like you know be a lawyer I was like eh that just never appealed to me because I feel like there's a lot of um stress and promises you have to make people that you realistically how much can you do without making yourself seem like you're not keeping your promises but um so he did that for many, many years and is no longer doing that. He actually does communications radio broadcasting now in Tennessee. Oh, really? Yeah, he actually is um, a partial owner in a radio station there. So he's still kind of like really pretty involved in seeing a lot that goes on, being on some boards and stuff and helping out with charity. Um, and then my mom down here, I lived down here with my mom. She moved here because my grandmother's here. And, um, you know, she kind of does her thing. She um, does, she actually, it's funny because when I got older and actually moved out, I did not realize her passion for uh, music and entertainment, but she actually got, gets gigs and actually sings and stuff at like really nice jazz lounge, jazz clubs and stuff. Like she's really always been into that. So, and then there's me with, um, I have two brothers and two sisters and you know, I'm, I like to think I'm the easy child. My parents have told me this, but maybe they tell it to all their kids. <laughs> uh, just because I've been fairly independent and, you know, kind of done my own thing. I mean, my parents were divorced when I was really young. So I got very tuned to like managing the social, personal dynamic of that, the undercurrent of their relationship and then making and keeping the relationships that I have with them separate. Cause you know, there's always tension and sometimes at first, and you know, you're never really educated on what to do when you split up. I can't ever blame parents. Cause you know, most of the time they're really young too. I'm not, I'm not in my twenties. So now when I get like this happened when they were in their twenties, I was like, they were kids. So, um, you know, there's a lot of like not holding on to things that happened when you were younger, because I'm like, if I think about it now, if I have a new nurse and she's in her twenties, I'm like, you're a kid. That's how old my parents were when they had me and, you know, split up. So mm. Where yeah. were you in the, in the packing order for the kids? So I was, so my dad had one dog. Um, he actually, my brother and sister from a, a previous relationship marriage 
And then I was, so I was the middle child. I was the oldest of my mom's kids because she's got one son that's younger than me, my brother. And then um, on my dad's side, I am actually like in the middle because I have two younger siblings on that side. Yes, I'd like to say I'm an original because I'm the only one of both of them. <laughs> but yeah, it's like navigating that. I was a, the older child with my mom's household and then like a middle child and kind of like peacekeeper on my dad's side. Right. Now, Which is interesting. Now we're all we're all mixed. Yes. But you are mixed with oh, a yes. darker pigment that so is this more is, visible to people. It is interesting because <laughs> when you see me with my siblings, so my youngest brother is actually very dark. Um, because so my mom on my my mom is actually black. Her mother, though, is Native American, black and white. So she actually looks it like we look our skin tone is the closest together. People see us right. and they're like, but my mom would always tell me stories. She's like, when you were a kid, you were so fair. People would say, oh, she's so cute. Whose baby is that? Because she's darker. Mm-hmm. She's like, she's mine. <laughs> and then my dad is very fair like me. And his mother was actually mixed as well. Um, she but she looked white. Um white and black mixed and then my grandfather on that side was black and hearing the stories about their marriage it was always interesting when i introduced my husband to my grandfather on my father's side the first thing he said to my husband was you're marrying her and then like giggled because he came from a time where um interracial marriage was not accepted and he recalled vividly the difficulties of being married to a woman who was so much lighter than him that could pass for white and he was a black man in the south so it's a very interesting dynamic. Well, it's kind of it's crazy as well. How many opportunities of racism were wasted because people didn't realize that you were actually you yeah. or someone else was black? Like, damn, yeah. that could have been an asshole to that person. <laughs> if only they had darker skin. It's true. And DNA test. I am totally guilty sometimes. Like, I'll <laughs> see something on the news or hear like a news article on Blake. Please, God, don't let them be black. They already think we're crazy. <laughs> and then if they're not in their white, I look at Chris. I go, you know, those are your people, right? Oh, and Chris, so your people Chris couldn't crazy. be more white if you Oh, tried. yeah, Mr. Canadian <laughs> over there. And But you know what's hilarious is uh, with Chris is all of his really, really close friends are all black. And, like, they're always, like, from Chicago, Atlanta. I was like, you just have a thing for, like, bad and bougie. You, like, married a chick from Detroit. <laughs> your close friends are, like, inner city. And then there's Chris. Yeah. <laughs> from Canada. Yeah. <laughs> so, very quiet, very but, humble. You know, they're not they're definitely not sticklers for that stuff up there. Like whenever I go to Canada, it's like the they don't it's not even an issue for them. And they his cousin even asked him, like, what's the issue down there with like this whole race thing with you guys? I was like, there's a history that sometimes it's not acknowledged. So some people feel disrespected by the fact that it's not acknowledged, and other people feel attacked when it is acknowledged because they're like, I wasn't part of it. It's like so it's kind of everybody in their corners not willing to have a conversation. Because everybody feels like if I have the conversation, I got to take a side. And you, you don't. Sometimes you just have to be an observer and be like, man, it's crappy that happened. Yeah. And an acknowledgement that it happened is what a lot of people just want. Yeah. Like my people, I mean, the, the, the potato famine. Awful. Absolutely awful. And then, and then I actually went to uh, Charleston a few weeks ago and went to the slave museum. Because I always wondered, because the first introduction of, um, you know, a lot of the black population in England was, there was a famous ship called the Windrush that came over from Jamaica, I think it yeah, was. Yes. So that was the 50s. That really yes. wasn't that long ago. And so I, I was always kind of confused because I knew of slavery. There was yeah. a guy, um, Dr. Livingston, that stopped, I think, the British side of slavery. Yes. Um, but what was happening was the British were getting the slaves, bringing them to the U.S., yeah exchanging them for American, you know, yes. products, coming back with their nice clean hands. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like we're not involved tobacco. in that at all. Yeah. So, yes. so it's, it's, you know, it's okay to look back at your forefathers for the things they did extremely well and also the, 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 the terrible things. Yes. And be like, yeah, that was fucking Because if you don't acknowledge it, it's bound to happen again. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can't. I mean, if you, can't you only can learn from behavior when you actually witness it. I mean, that is literally the art of like behavioral therapy. There's a whole like portions of science and medicine related to it, behavioral therapy. And if you live in a place of denial that it happened, how can you learn anything from it? Yeah. Like this has never happened, so it's not an issue. We know from fire department. I was gonna say, that's there's a, a memo parallel. every time something <laughs> happens. Like, hey, so lessons learned, folks. Yeah, this is don't stick your finger in the socket. Someone actually did this. We didn't think that that would be possible, but it has happened. I'm like, so it's just an acknowledgement. It's not a blame. Usually, you know, a lot of times people just want to have the conversation. They're just looking for acknowledgement. Like, yeah, that's pretty bad that happened. Exactly. It's okay to say that. Yeah, yeah, it is. yeah we fucked up that time. Yes. Yeah. And that, you know, like, man, people have done bad things. And like, I don't want to ever be, I don't have, like, I don't ever want to see that happen again to people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, well, speaking of that, so you were telling me a story about your grandmother's brother. Yes. Yeah, so I'd love so, to get that on tape. Uh, my grandmother's like, you know, deep south. And so her um, her parents originally lived in Tennessee. Um, when she when they moved to Tennessee, they were sharecroppers. And um, sh- her family got very fortunate in that her mother, who, because she was Native American and black, actually did not look historically black, which a lot of those people were actually asked to take care of people's children and work in the house because they considered them to be more like visually appealing with lighter skin. Um, and she became very close to the family there. Um, and when they desegregated pools in the South, you know, and that actually been a law for a while, but it takes the South, it takes us a little longer. We're on Southern time. It's like South people to do that. Um, the first time that they took the kids swimming. So my grandmother's mother is with this woman that she works for. So her kids are obviously mingling with, um, the other kids because kids don't know any different. And you know, it's what we're doing. They're at the pool and her, one of her brothers, who's very, very dark was in the pool with all the white kids. And she, to this day, I mean, I have, he, we were going to have a family cruise and the way this came up was that he's really not a fan of water. And I'm like, what happened? Because his aversion to dealing with water, getting in pools, going cruise ships is like pretty deep seated. He's like, it's just not really a thing I've ever like, not really give you a reason. My grandma was like, I vividly recall this. We're at the pool. He's in the pool. He's only like five or six swimming with the other kids. And she said, you know, these three men came into the pool area, white men, and literally proceeded to waterboard a five-year-old with bleach and, you know, screaming their expletives about how, you know, you need to learn your place and we don't care what they say, but you're not going to be in a pool with white women to a five or six-year-old black child. And she's like, you know, everyone's screaming, freaking out. And she's like, and honestly, I was pretty sure they were going to kill him. Uh, The saving grace is that obviously the one we're with, her husband owns property and my mom worked for them and you know his wife was like you're not going to do this i'm going to call my husband now like you're going to hear about this and that pretty much stopped it but she's like watching that happen to me was like the first time in my life you know it's seven or eight her realizing it is two different worlds and i need to learn how to toe the line because there are people that really are going to make sure that you toe the line and that has scarred him for life he will never bring it up. It's something it's, uh, you know, like we talked about, they didn't have crisis counseling back then. It's nothing he's dealt with and he's gone through his life. Um, and for her, I, you would never even know it because she's just, she's so open to people. Her best friend is white. You know, they go on the cruise ship together. I take them on the gambling boat, shake people down. I mean, they're like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're card sharks. And she would never know this. But when she talks about where her political beliefs stand, I kind of, look at it and I'm like, this is why people have a hard time understanding why people stick very much conservatively or democratic in their side is for her. It's difficult for her to hear people talk about politics now in terms of like money and like, you know, what they're going to do with like 
properties and, and taxes because she's like, I grew up as a black woman in the South, which was nothing. Like, you want to be nothing, you be a black, uneducated woman in the South. When I was born in 1929, that's nothing. She's like, and I remember these events. And so for me today, when I hear the conversation, the rhetoric, it just brings back those memories. And she's like, so I can't get my head around the whole, I only do it because I, you know, I like the financial agenda. Or, you know, I like the the foreign policy agenda. She's like, because to me, I'm like, you're propagating that because it doesn't matter. That doesn't mean anything because I, I have nothing. I've never had anything except yourself for someone to like be willing to waterboard you with bleach just because you're a different skin color and you're in a pool with other, you know, skin colors is a problem. So I'm like, you know, it's a perspective. So I, and I, I say I'm pretty like, I'm, a, I would consider myself to be more of a progressive moderate. Chris definitely progressive moderate, but we have family members that are both very like democratic, very conservative Republican. And it's just understanding the perception of both. It's not, you're not a bad person. Because a lot of times for them, they're like, I didn't even think of that as like a race issue. It's like, but you have to understand people that do take it to heart because that's the, where they're coming from. Like if that's where you're coming from and you see politics in terms of like human rights, my, how minorities are treated, you know, you're that's where you go to in your head because to you, the money's like, yeah, it's nice, secondary. But I know when like nobody had anything and all you're treated on is the basis of that. You got to understand why people are where they're at sometimes. Yeah. Well, and you, you hear it. So you go back to that, that moment in the pool. Yeah. You got three grown men taking a child and covering him in bleach. Explain to me how that's any different than what's going on with the Taliban or Al Qaeda yeah. or the IRA. Or actually, I mean, and the, the IRA, people around you, they're all screaming, but they're powerless to help because, I mean, the pool's full of other like white children, white women, and they're all like, you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, what's that got but to do with, with anything? That's just yeah. pure hatred and then the like, only cancer. They don't know this kid. I was like, and I was like, I, I can't get my head around the fact that you can stand over a child crying and I don't even have kids and I'd stand over a child crying and be pouring bleach in their face. No, exactly. And that, like, that, to me, like, oh, that's man. three people that need to be removed from society. Yeah, like it's I'm not, like, what kind of hatred issue. do you live at when you're like, you're a child. I've never even had a conversation with you. You can barely walk. You're like in your little training floaties. And I like, you do not deserve to live here. And I'm going to remind you of your place. So I, I'm like, and she could be very much deep seated. Like, I hate wife. It, are you kidding me? Like she loves, for her, it's not even an issue of race when she meets people. Her political beliefs, though, are rooted in her personal experience. So I try to make that part of like my mental mindset when I'm dealing with people. Because the fire department, you'd be surprised how many people are really traditionally conservative. And there's a lot more people that are liberal than there used to be. But I find that that divides people a lot more than you well, would think. Well, it's crazy because then you get that. I mean, we've, we've all heard it. The most, you know, some people will spout stuff and you're like, how can you think that way? And then they'll go run a call and, and risk their life to save someone of a different color. Yes. I'm like, you are, you know... But get, for them, there's like a cognitive dissonance. Like they don't see that. It's a, dis a complete disconnect between their Completely. philosophy and the reality. Because they're like, I would, I could never see myself doing that to somebody. And I'm like, you can't. But you have to understand like all action is preceded by little small actions. And people perceive even these little choices that you make as like in indicative of what you would do in a larger situation. That may not be true. But perceptions reality to an extent and you have to be willing to have the conversation and not be defensive and angry and feel like someone's coming for you yeah yeah i know that i think i mean i talk about this a lot on this podcast but to me the gratitude 
yeah being grateful for what you have in this world and looking and like i said i don't know how you can live in america and not be grateful period Dude, i'm like listen <laughs> do we have problems yeah i was like <clears throat> but i was born in a society where as a woman i have a choice i have a voice i can get an education i can work any job i want and i even went to a male-dominated field where you know people may actually know there were people that already said you shouldn't be here and i was like that okay mm-hmm. you do you boo I've told lots of men they shouldn't be here. Right? They were <laughs> fucking awful firefighters. And they tend to take it harder than the women. I'm just going to say they're, they could take it a little harder than the women sometimes. But for me, I'm like, there are people before me that fought for this. And so I'm always going to do my best to like be, uh, to do, uh, to work hard, be honest, be ethical, be grateful for what I have so that the nurse, next person behind me can do. Cause so, you know, sometimes you have people like people these days are like, well, when I was, I had to do it. So you should have to do it. I was like, God, they thank God that like, not everybody thinks that way. Mm-hmm. Thank God that people weren't like, well, as a woman, I had no rights and could get beaten by my husband. So you should have to do it. Or, you know, thank God that, uh, you know, black people that somebody didn't say, well, I had to work in the field. So you got to like, somebody was like willing to take the bullet. So the rest of us wouldn't have to. So sometimes when people get set in their ways, cause this does happen in every environment I've seen and not just firefighting, but that's an easy one. People would be like, well, I had to go work on the rescue. I care less that it's burning this guy out because I had to do it. You got to put your dues in. And I'm like, but he's not going to do his dues because you know what? He He's doing them. And he's like, these people don't care about me. I'm totally burnt. I'm not getting the opportunity to do other things. So this is why you see so many of them leave the fire department and pursue other education. Because it's like there's a lack of appreciation. People will do a lot for ducats if they feel appreciated. You can't make someone feel appreciated and put them in a really bad situation and make them feel like unappreciated. You can't and then not pay them. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And that whole it's the way we always did it. You know, I mean, like say, for example, you're on the rescue. Oh, in my generation, you were. Yeah. when, When you were on the rescue. You didn't transport exactly. and you ran six calls a shift. These yes. guys are working 24 hours. EMS evolved because our population is so unhealthy, but also it is very much a way for a lot of these fire departments to maintain paid positions because you bill for that. Like your taxes pay for your fire service. Like, you know, they don't respond to an auto accident and then send you a bill unless they transport you. That's the EMS side. And even that's, that's the new. money. Yeah. It's like that is the money. So I was like, you got to remember there's like a business side to this. So, Stop buying the hand that feeds you or like treating it horribly because what you're going to be graded on, honestly, is your EMS most of the time. That's what people complain about. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they complain about. That's what you hear complaints about. So. All right. Well, then, so getting back to your younger years, obviously, you ended up becoming a firefighter. Were you an yeah. athlete then? Were you a sports person? So in high school, I did actually a lot of um, sports. I did cross country. Um and then uh, did a little bit of lacrosse, which my husband doesn't believe because he says I'm the most uncoordinated person he's ever met. It's like back then I had a little bit more coordination maybe. Um, but always was really into like staying fit, running, because I realized now at this age of my life, that was where I found my early flow. Like it just puts you in this mindset, you know, you get those hormones running, that endorphins, and you just feel better. You, your head clears for a little bit. So for me, um, being able to do firefighting, like something very physical was a great opportunity because I went through, I did EMT. Um, I was fortunate enough that my godparents, she, the, she worked as a nurse manager at one of the hospitals and was like, you really should try the ER, got my EMT, um, and then got hired by Orange County and they actually put me through fire standards. And once I finished fire standards, I was actually, there was, so in my class, it was a mixed class. We actually, like half of us was Orange County, half was Osceola. Oh, okay. And, um, what year was this? Huh, 
Really? <laughs> I want to say this was in uh, 2002 or three. Okay. Because that's when I started. Right when I was going through yeah. before I was tech myself. Yeah. And so there weren't any girls really in our class. I think I was one of two. And for me, as much as that could be like, you know, at first it was not fun because it wasn't just the firefighters that were like, okay, there's a chick in our class. It actually, um, people don't realize the perception is there were people that actually worked for the fire academy and fire department were kind of like women in the fire department's a problem. And, and for me now, this is my own personality. But I was like, you're not going to tell me where I can and can't be. So if you don't like me, it's going to be personal because it's not going to be because I can't do my job. And so for me, that really was a push. Like I pushed myself and I, I got very fortunate. I had guys in my class who were not like six, four, two twenty five. You know, they may be shorter than me and like 90 pounds, but they could physically do the job. They learned the tricks and they were like, there's ways to do this. You have to just figure out how to do this with your mechanics to get this job done. You may not be able to like lift what a 35 foot ladder by yourself, but we don't know many people that could. And we wouldn't suggest that they do that. So like, so the old days of like people like killing themselves to do absolutely insane things was like, this isn't actually even like really effective to get the job done. Everything that this job requires, you can do. It's just, are you going to be able to do it? So that pushed me because I had to work harder to be in physical shape. Like these guys could just hang out and, you know, work out maybe twice a week and be fine. For me, there was a little bit more effort, but I was able to do it. And the respect that you get when you leave. I vividly recall when I actually graduated right well, right before graduation, I worked for Orange County. It was who I was working with. And um, I had somebody from Orlando come up to me with an application and say, hey, you know, because they all teach out there firefighters from different departments are like hey we'd like you to apply for Orlando and I was like that was the best compliment because I was like they really had a reputation for being very hard on all of their like new firemen especially females so I was like all right I'm in the right direction and I said to them I was like I just think it would be very disrespectful that they hired me were willing to put me through standards and give me a job and for me to say at the end of training I'm leaving to go to someone else I just it for my own personal ethic that's my own personal choice. It wouldn't, I wouldn't judge anybody who did otherwise. I was like, for me though, I think I would personally have an issue with it. So I stayed with Orange County, but I was like, all right, cool. Like that's, I don't need someone to tell me I'm doing a good job. You have to like find ways to say, am I performing, you know, at my, at my best? These are the metrics and this is what I want to be. And I always wanted to be a little bit better than that. Mm -hmm. And as a female, I knew I was coming to a place where everyone was going to be watching to see if you could. Yeah. Well, that's what's so bizarre. So, you know, kind of like the racism thing as well. Yeah. Same with, you know, your sexuality and, and, yeah. and your sex in the fire department. I, I, tell you, I say this all the time and it is that simple. You either can or you can't. Right. And I, I'm, you know, six foot and yeah. you know, 165 back then. I'm pretty much the same now, but I ran yeah. all the time. I went to the gym three, four times a week, yeah. as well as working a full-time job, as well as going to school yeah. at nights and weekends, because none of us came out the womb ready to be a firefighter exactly. because if you can can do the bare minimum then what the fuck are you waiting for right. now now focus on being as good as you can yeah, thought, yeah. now there are absolutely men and women that have no business being firefighters yeah. and that's why there are all these other professions and we talk right. about we'll talk about the flow and those are as important yeah so nothing against them but to say that you can't because you're male or female is ridiculous and it's so cool i talked about this quite a bit the the crossfit community yes. really smash that stigma and be they like did. go to any gym yeah and i guarantee you you'll be the humbled diversity by is like body types sex race like it is you're here to perform and everyone around you is going to be supportive of you doing the best that you can 
for where you're at and they could care less where you start physically because we're like you're here to get better mm-hmm. why would we discourage that yeah exactly and you know there's there's obviously some areas where it's more likely going to be male. I know the, yes. the Navy SEALs, I think, are still yes. all, all and, men. You know, you know I tell people, I said, there is a, predisp- a predisposition body type for certain things. And there's, um, I mean, now that I'm older and I'm not like, yeah, let's just do it. There are things I'm like, ah, I'm just not interested in doing this. I have no desire to trek through the woods for like six weeks with a rucksack on my back sleeping on the ground. I'm going to admit this. Yeah, I'm a glamper. I'm totally fine with that. I'm good. And even now firefighting, I tell people, I was like, yes, you, and you're going to have to work harder as a woman to stay in like really functional shape as a fireman because even men, like it's rough on the body. And I was like, there are just things that you're really going to have to work if you want to be good at. And physically disposition wise, like I know I could never be like, you look at Michael Phelps. Why is he so good at what he does? They've even said it like his height, his wingspan makes him, yes, predisposed to actually do really well at that. He works very, very hard, but he has definitely got the physique for it. But put him on the gymnastics floor. Yeah. Fucking awful. Totally. And he (laughs) acknowledges this. Yeah. Like he acknowledges this. So I'm like, you know, find your niche, work within it. Be the best that you can at that. But also you do. There's also a little bit of self-searching too involved. And like, hey, is this really, you know, what you want to do? Like, I always have people like, why don't you want to do flight nursing? One, I don't like to fly. Like, I want half a Xanax to go to Vegas. I was like, when did, when are they going to start serving drinks on this flight? It's very small, very hot, very cramped. And it's a, a miracle of modern science. They say all the time, the helicopters manage to get off the ground. I'm good. That's a really small space with a really critical patient for if we hit turbulence for me to freak out. I need room to freak out. But no, and that's a perfect example <laughs> yes. of where you want smaller people. Yes. That's just, that's physics as well. And they do that. They are like big on weight. Like, how much does the patient weigh? What is, like, what is their girth? Like, we only have a certain amount. And they even tell, there are plenty of people that are tall in it, but they work, a lot of them work very hard. And they're like, I have to make sure, one, I fit in my flight suit, but that I can, or it's going to be a cramped ride. And they, you know, they're not, you don't see flight medics and nurses that are morbidly obese. You know, and that's, again, it's not prejudice. It's just that's that specific job. I I think a lot of... um, you know, fire pilots now are female. Yeah. They do incredibly well with that, you know. They so do. With the change in the G-forces and like the size of the, the cramped spaces, it's great. Yeah. Well, everybody has their niche, man. Yeah. Their you niche. Used, used the word fireman a minute ago. I think about, it's got to be almost two years ago now. There was a big uproar, maybe it was a year and a half ago, um, over the word fireman, really? which should be fire fire. I was like, again, my thing is, if you're worried about the name, you've already completely missed the point. Yeah. You know? I, um, I mean... I mean, man is in the... It, it, if you want to argue semantics, it's in the word woman as well. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? But I, it's... Yeah. You start putting personal, all these gender neutral things, you, you're missing the point. And so... We and I will say, yeah, that same. is definitely uh, a failing of, like, the certain sides of politics is because they become so focused on, like, picking out the things you do wrong. When people are, like, trying to understand it, it's like they become discouraged for masking they're like i don't want anything to do with it because all they do over there is attack people if you don't see exactly the right thing so you have to give people the ability to have the conversation using what they know and be educated and be sensitive to the issue without you actually attacking them and something like that is like they've been called that for years i mean i okay i've never been offended when someone called me fire like fireman because i'll tell you right now when you're in a full set of bunker gear 
with your helmet and your SCVA, no one knows what sex you are. Exactly. They really don't. Who you, what, you know, yeah. what kind of sex you like, yep. what skin color you are. Yep. They'll notice the really short person. And sometimes it's actually a guy. But other than that, no one notices what you like, what your sex is. But it's what they will not. notice is if you're good or bad. Exactly. You know? So that's so true. So true. So true. So, yeah, definitely. This is very much, you know. I'm like, it's, a, but people become very hyper focused. And, um, I think sometimes it's, it reveals like a little bit of an insecurity that they may have about something. Like people feel like I, like, you know, I, I, I'm not a man. I'm a firewoman. I'm, you know, I'm a firefighter. And I'm like, does it matter what they call you as long as you know? As long as you know? I mean, I had this notorious habit. It's not anything for people to do. But when I worked at the fire department and I became a lieutenant, um, and my entire crew was male, actually, at 51. And, you know, we're really busy. They'd occasionally have me, like, go and help somebody who's riding up or training. So I would drive the engine, and they would ride as lieutenant. And um, I vividly recall, like, I hated the fact that they had white shirts for the officers. This is a woman was an issue for me because, one, it rains every day in Florida, and it was pretty thin material. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to say it. You know, I physically have the physical bearing of a woman. So I was like, who decided that every day was going to be a white t-shirt day? Well, especially in a job where you're going to get dirty most of the yeah, time. And you're I gonna, never understood the, yeah, the dress Yeah, you're going to get uniforms. sweat and you're going to be like doing movement. So um, occasionally I would do where I would wear like my gray t-shirt underneath my white officer shirt. And if we were out doing something like host testing, we got a call. I may not even put the white shirt on. So we get on scene and like, so everybody would look the same. And I remember that I was training somebody and he said to me, um, and he was an engineer at the time, but he pulled out and he wanted to put on his dressed down white shirt. And I was like, you know what? I think that's good. You have pride in what you're doing. It was a light blue that he had because he was an engineer, but he was like, cause he wanted it to be known that he was the officer. Cause you know, he had his badge and stuff. And I, so let him do his thing afterwards. And he goes, it doesn't like, it doesn't bother you. Like you don't. And I said, well, honestly speaking, I'll, I'll be honest with you. One, if you have a good crew and everybody knows the rules and they're respectful, it's not an issue. I said, I personally find that the only time people ask when, who's in charge is when something's going wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's not an issue for me. I don't care who they think is in charge. If they have a problem or a decision needs to be made, I have no problem taking the hit for that. You can ask my crew that. I will definitely have the conversation. I said, but I'm confident in my crew. People compliment crews. I don't ever have someone saying, oh, as an officer, she was really nice. They're like, that crew was very competent, very good at what they do. Is a compliment for the station. As an officer, it's a compliment to you because those people work under you. I said, but... If you have to get on scene and say, I'm in charge, you're actually, you're not. If you have to tell everyone you are, you're not. So for me, I was, it it never was an issue. Um, I got over the whole sex thing quickly because I was like, I'm a woman. I'm going to walk in. I look like a girl. People are already going to have their predisposed ideas. And my dad said to me, he goes, people have a problem with you and you are competent at your job. You're good at your job. You perform. That's personal. The question is, is it a professional or personal problem? If it's because you're a chick, it's a personal problem. I tell people, it's like, listen, dude, I've been living with having a vagina for 30 something years. You're going to have to get over it. <laughs> I can't help you manage that. <laughs> like, I have this. I'm going to, I came in the world with one. I'm going to leave with one. I, sorry, it bothers you. Can't help you with it. I hope that you work that out with yourself, that this really bothers you. But moving on, <laughs> like, it's nothing I'm going to change or I can fix for you. Because do you have an issue with me professionally? No, it's always like, well, women. I was like, I, I don't have anything for you on that. Let's talk about professionally. Yeah, I've had patients, you know, that have been 
Hispanic that I was the lead medic and yeah. super compassionate with them and they're spitting and, and oh, yeah. being a real complete asshole to me. And then the the Hispanic member of our crew that was laughing at this patient, yeah. she's all about, like, oh, hey, you know, so yeah. that's the thing people miss. It's their problem. And you honestly think that by you engaging them, you're going to convince them. They're going to be like, oh, you know what? I, I, was, I was an asshole the last 30 years of my no. life. But after talking to you, I'm going to change everything. No, no reaction is truly a reaction. And I explained this to people in the South. I said, so the South is like, they're the kings and queens of passive aggressive. Like, there's always like these little like snidel things like, oh, oh, bless your heart. I was like, up North, I will say we deal with things differently. I said, but the one thing you do know of North is there's a time for talking and a time for not. Mm -hmm. When we don't say anything to you and we give you the look, we are in a bad place. As like, no reaction is a reaction. No response is a response. It's like, and there are plenty of times people will say and do things and I look at them and I'm like, are we done? That is a response. Three words. Have not cussed anybody out. Have not called you out of your name. Made personal aspirations on you. Because the problem you're having is you and I've disregard. It's, this isn't even an issue for me to deal with. Are you done having your moment? Let's mm. move on. I was the same in the back yeah. of the rescue. If, cause I'm, you know, pretty, yes. try and be kind and compassionate with, with my patients, yeah. regardless of the, you know, who yeah. they are. There shouldn't be a slight Cause it's scale. a reflection of you of how you respond to yeah. it. Yeah. But if I was you're like, a dick, as long as you're not in my physical, like physically, uh, threat to me, dude, this is on you. Yeah. Uh, if you're a physical threat, you're going to be yes. posing. Yeah. Daddy we have an issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cause at that point, we have an issue. But yeah, other than that, I'm like, you have to understand that a lot of times they're not even, and people love if your response can actually change, your reaction to it can actually change whether or not how their behavior is viewed because you responding in a certain way can make what they were doing be mute. It's like, yeah, they were acting a complete fool and everything, but you came back professionally and said this, this, and this, and you're the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I used to tell my crew when they'd get mad because, you know, you'd have your regulars, and especially if you're in like an area where you run a lot of calls with people and they, they have, they've had, they may have this horrible story. You don't know it. You just know you got called, you show up to help, and now they're being a complete dick to you. And I'm like, you have to understand anger is when you have no control, anger is the easiest emotion to generate to, to get control. Like someone's sick. I don't know what to do. I'm mad. I don't know what to do. And I don't feel like you're doing enough. It's very, that is the easiest emotion people to generate to gain control of a situation. They don't have control. Whereas like, that's why politics people get angry very easily. It's very easy to evoke, evoke that emotional response. And then you overcome that. Like, I don't know what to do. Well, I'm going to be angry because I can, I can always fight. I can't, I don't know what else to do, but I can always fight you. It's like your response to that anger, it's even better for them if they can transfer it to you. So I'm angry and I made you angry and there's a little bit of pleasure in that because I'm sharing the pain. And I was like, and I'm not saying you should suffer alone, but I should be like, but saying to somebody, I'm not sure what, I'm, I'm, I understand that you have these feelings. I feel for you. I'm here to help you. What can I do to help you? Because I can't own that, man. Like, it's not fair to me. It's not fair to the crew. It's not fair to the next patient I run on. It's not fair to my family that I take it home to. And that's the hardest part, I think. Um, we really don't spend a lot of time helping people manage that emotional transference that happens because the reason you're good at most people are good at their jobs in EMS is because they can be, they have that emotional ability to like be very intense. But it's very easy for you also for people to use you as like their version of an emotional sponge. Like, I'm just going to offlet this. You're stuck with me. I have to get all this out and you're going to be the carrier of this. Regardless of what you have going on in your life. And if you don't know how to like build that boundary for yourself, that emotional boundary is very easy for you to just become this sponge and then you burn out. Like you, there's nowhere for it to go and you just absorb it and then you get mad and you're like, why am I mad? And it's like, 
That is not me. They are home. We go home. That's why I tell people. It's like, these people you run out, they're angry, but they're home. We go home. Leave it here. It's not yours. You don't take, don't take their cockroaches home with you. That's their, those are their bugs. Let them have them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, you talked about getting hired. So what about um, nursing? How did you find yourself getting into So there? when I came to the fire department, I actually went to medic school through the county. My preceptor was Wendy Gross, one of my best friends. She's great. She's a great woman in the fire service. Um, me and Wendy have gotten into trouble, gotten kicked out of a few bars together. So, um, and then I went to nursing school because I was like, you know, I really want to have something to fall back on. I know in this field, people get hurt. Like a lot of people were going out for back injuries and... I was like, I really want to have something to fall back on. And also, like, the medical side appealed to me. It's a lot of people really didn't want to do the medical side, but I was like, this is kind of like where we're going in the future. And I felt like it allowed me also to be really good at something. And there's always something new happening. Fire service has evolved a lot. There are a lot of new tactics and stuff. I encourage anybody who's like, I want to do special ops. I want to do truck. I was like, find your thing and live it. Like, for me, I actually really enjoyed EMS. I felt like I actually made more of a difference in people's lives and had more of, like, an impact on scene, EMS-wise, because that's what we ran, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, fires are great, but I'm like, that was 90% of our calls was EMS. So, for me, I was like, I really want to be good. I want to be comfortable at this. So, I did my bridge to nursing and started working at an ER, did um, the ER and was at 42, and realized I was burning myself out pretty heavily. Explain to everyone Station 42. Oh, 42 is in Pine Hills, Silver Star, Pine Hills. And it's a very, um, it's one of the busiest stations in that county. But, you know, um, high minority, there's a lot of socioeconomic problems with it being low income. But a lot of the patients that are there are also older. Um, there's a lot of immigrants in that area who don't have access to primary care. Um you know, and a lot of lower income that does not have access to primary care, which is why I sit on my soapbox about universal health care all the time. That's another conversation. So a lot of these times these patients will call you and they may or may not actually need you. They may call you. I remember some guy called me for nightmares one time. I was like, really? But you also get people who are like, hey, you know, you're you are actually having a heart attack. And they'd say, I, I don't want to go by ambulance. I don't I, don't, I can't afford the, the ambulance bill. And I was like, these are when like these things come like you're like, like this is when it like hits home. Like this is a person that really needs to be in the hospital, really needs to be in the ER, really needs a ride. And those were always the ones that didn't want to go. Yeah. This is, this is you know, as we talked about before, the universal. That's my thing. The fundamental thing is if, you know, if, if you don't have the capacity for your family to go yeah. treat a heart attack or cancer or whatever because yeah. of the way that we do medical yeah. in the healthcare, that fundamentally is a huge problem in my eyes. And I, I honestly feel like... Um, when people are like, I, I, they have a conversation about whether it's a right or not. I said, let me tell you something. Even if you don't think it's a right, say you are one of those people that's like, I don't care. I feel like I should. the government shouldn't give me anything. Everyone should work for what they have. I was like, that's fine. But I will tell you this. If you keep people uneducated and sick, you can tell them whatever you want and they'll believe you. They're too tired or they don't know enough to do anymore. So if you really want this political divide that like is tearing people apart to change, having people be healthy and educated Paying, putting money into education and to healthcare, that is your key. That is your road to success. People that are educated and healthy can work, contribute to society. They live longer. They have better quality of lives. You have people consistently sick and uneducated. There is nowhere to go. Yeah. Also, what gets me is it seems like most of the holy religious doctrines that people subscribe to 
their profits were not like, well, I got mine. Fuck that guy. Yeah, like I'm I was like, wasn't it all sure. about giving out to people who didn't yeah. have? Uh, you know, like again, I never heard Jesus be like, yo, I can help you out with this. I could turn this water into wine, but I can't turn my water into wine later. Like, I never heard that. I was like, you know, and thank goodness or God. And I'm like, I don't consider myself to be a religious person, but as for abortion, I'm like, you know, people that are always quoting the Bible, I was like, wasn't, didn't Jesus and his family, didn't his parents like flee their native land because the king had ordered the execution of all the males because he had been prophesied that the Messiah was going to be born? And he, so they fled into a whole other country and thank God they hadn't closed their border. Because, you know, your prophet would not have technically been born and been able to perform miracles and die on a cross for your sins. So just say it. If we're really anti-immigrant, let's have a whole conversation about immigrants throughout history in the Bible, if you want to stick with that one. I was like, a lot of the actual considered to be true prophets in most major religions are people that immigrated and moved around and performed miracles and works for people that were not familiar to them. I was like, so just saying if we're gonna go there let's just like stay consistent for me if that's your story stick to it but you you know you can't put this guy's like you can't say that you're biblical and you want to live in that environment and then be completely like i don't want anybody who's not like me or like they got to deal with their own problems as far as i know i mean jesus wrote a lot of problems from people that he didn't have to yeah well, he didn't have he to walk around healing lepers making a difference yeah exposing you know? himself to leprosy like he doesn't have leprosy, but he's like walking into colonies doing it, you know, finding, looking for the poor, looking for the downtrodden. Yeah, it's like these people are like, I don't really want to be exposed to anything that I don't have to. Yeah, exactly. And unless you got money, you don't need health care. I believe all his stuff was free. I'm just throwing it out there. I could be totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, but again, <laughs> and, it just, and that's the thing. It's not. It's not demonizing anyone's philosophy. Yeah. It's just that they all, the common denominator of all these religions, from what I can tell, and of course you can find that yeah. extremism in everyone. The, the Old Testament was kind of a little yeah. punchy, let's be honest. But um, was that kindness and compassion. Mm -hmm. And that's what's funny with the politics. Everyone's like left and right, left and right. Clinton and, and Trump, yeah. name any redeeming, like, kindness features of either of those two it's not about being a democrat or a republican it's out of i talk about this a lot 330 million americans these were the best two fucking people you could bring yeah, to us i'm sorry but as, as a an immigrant myself you know you're I, like what's happening yeah just just yes. I'm, I'm all about it but find me two good people yes. who care about foreign policy foreign policy because we want to stop sending our young yes. men and women out there to die yes. that's why you get on well with right. other countries you know yes totally and like you know it's if you create a war state, you're going to have war. Mm -hmm. what's and sometimes the you have there? to. I mean, there's right. times when you need to send true. them. You train so that you can protect those that you love and you can keep peace. You have to have people that are trained in warfare to have peace. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have to remember that you don't start out with like a kick in the door. That's not going to go anywhere good. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, it's, it's that whole pick your battles. Yes. You know, you need to have, we've got some incredible people in our armed services who are ready to do some incredible things. Yeah. But if we're picking a fight with everyone, the ones... And then even our own citizens. Them. Like at this point, we don't even have, you know, we have quite a bit of turmoil at home. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go out and police the rest of the world when you're not really, your own house is kind of dirty. Yeah. Yeah. But so then that's like, up to know? us as well. I mean, that's the yeah. thing that these people aren't going to fix us. Right. We're going to fix us. So just like Jesus and Buddha and, and everyone else that was out there that was out... 
in their communities making a difference. That's the message they're trying to tell us is go out into your community right. and, and do doing something things good. for other people. We have this conversation does not mean that you don't have for you. And like everybody lives in this world. Well, like well, I'm not, I don't want to, they should, we shouldn't be giving to because if we give, then we don't have it. I'm like, I don't, that me being nice to you does not mean that now there's no, that like it takes away from my kindness. Me being pleasant to you doesn't, does not mean that now there's no pleasant list left for anyone else. No. Like you, cause you can't like pour from an empty pot. So there has to be something there. So self-care is very much important, but you being able to give to other people and some of the basic things, I mean, it's like Jesus's powers weren't described as um, diminishing because he healed people. I never heard him be like, yo, I got to recharge y'all. I used up all the zaps for today. So people live in like a very, but we've created like a total sum game for people where they're, and politics has done very good in that and making it like either or. You either or or you aren't, so you got to pick a side. You can't be in the middle. You can't use logic because then you're going to have someone extreme on one side or the other who's going to come for you. And then it literally, it pushes you either one way or the other. That's where I find. I find that people's views, the extremists are actually pushing people that are truly moderate to pick in a side that it seems extreme. Yeah, I and think they're not a, really. But no, 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 there is a push to, to stay in the middle. I think that people are starting to push back. Finally, like, yeah. we're like, we're not crazy. You're crazy. Yeah, exactly. Like, the inmates are running the asylum. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah, it is. It, like I said, it just seems so, so simple to me. Just, you know, just if there's kindness and compassion at the core of what you do, that goes for everything. You know, and I wish, and I've talked about this before, I wish that we would apply that to our drug policy, to our prisons, to things where we can stop creating criminals in the first place. You know, we have a mental health. I just posted a um, a kind of, I guess, a fact the other day where we have twice as many deaths, uh, gun deaths by suicide than we do homicide. What does that tell you? I mean, of course, the guns are a tool for a lot of these, you know, deaths. But the underlying thing is this mental health crisis that we have. And people really don't have. And I will say, as someone who works in the hospital setting, there is really it's a very we have a very horrible system of getting people health, like help for mental health. So if you come in and you're considered to be a risk to yourself or others, they bake rack you for seventy two hours. But we have many times where these patients are sitting in the ER for hours because we have to find a place to send you that does mental health. ERs do not staff psychiatrists. So we're like, all right, so we like, we're putting you someplace. We've tried to take away everything that you could hurt yourself with or hurt other people. But because we now have to protect everyone else from you having a crisis and yourself, you almost have to be treated almost like an inmate. You know, you're put in paper scrubs. We remove everything that you could hurt yourself with, all of your personal belongings. We want to get you help, but we don't have a psychiatrist. And the nurses are still required to see other patients so are the docs so it's not like anyone sitting there with you having a conversation during like those critical hours that you're admitted we're waiting for you to be transferred someplace and the reason why it's difficult is because they're always full which and it makes it difficult for them to make sure that you have outpatient when you're discharged you don't go there for a week two weeks for someone to really talk to you find out the root of your problems try to get you on a good plan they're like all right let's just get on past the crisis here's some drugs they'll help a little bit Go out into the world. Which is our, our healthcare in general. You know, and again, it's not picking on the practitioners out there, but if you have a practice that de- that needs to have X amount of patients oh, come totally. through the door. Because it's run by insurance. Yeah. So therefore prescribe, prescribe and, and off you go, versus as you and I both know, you know, there needs to be the 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 acute medical focus on things that we really need people for trauma and pediatric cancers and you know it's funny because in the united states their biggest um shortage right now is for internal medicine primary care docs 
I was like, well, why would they? There's no money in primary care. There's docs that come out that make less than people that go and get a master's degree as a nurse anesthetist. They make more than some primary care docs. I was like, so why would you go to school for eight years to work in an office that you are dependent upon the insurance company to send you patients and you're paid per patient? So you got to see them a certain amount of time. And even if you order things for them, there's a good chance the insurance company is either going to fight you or say they don't really need that. So I'm like, the money is actually in sickness and illness. And it is great. And like we found, like you said, we're dealing with things like cancers and autoimmune diseases, things that we could never address before. But it shouldn't be that the only way you actually get seen and treated by a doc is if you have some crazy, bizarre disease, because we're not doing anything to keep the rest of the population healthy. Like it's there, especially in the United States, where it is a money driven system. And I get everyone's like, oh, if you have a universal health care. And I'm like, I, I see the fundamental difference is when I visit Canada, they're like, yeah, but it can take so long. Like it, they were on the list for a year to get that hip replacement. I was like, and in the United States, if you don't have insurance, you're not on a list at all. Mm-hmm. So on a list or not even an option. Like you need to get your hip replaced. Do you have a primary care? Hmm, you should follow up at some point. Go to the clinic and let them know and then hope that it gets bad enough that you can see that you are disabled and go on Medicaid, Medicare, which will take forever to kick in and that they will help you get it eventually. Or just fling yourself off a bridge, yep. land on your hip. Yeah, live done. on the street, <laughs> you know, and have a reason for being bitter with life and people not wanting to deal with you because you are, but you have a reason. Yeah. And that's what I find, you know, with back home is, um, it's geographical and I know where I grew up, you know, the, the care was amazing, but we're in rural, yes. rural England. So, you know, we didn't have a super dense population, yeah. but you know, like that, that's the argument I get. Oh, you know, it takes forever to get stuff done. And obviously it depends on the acuity. If it's life threatening, it doesn't yeah. at all. Yeah. But, um, the other thing is I've been in America now for 16, 17 years, There's a couple of times where I had to go to a specialist for a couple of things and it was like a three six month wait for that too totally so don't pretend especially it's outpatient like, yeah it's not mcdonald's here either you don't just drive through and yeah you, i was and like listen i was like unless you're paying cash money that's just the way the world works man like uh, there's not enough people in certain fields like they constantly say healthcare is understaffed one is an aging population two the population that is just very unhealthy in general mm-hmm. as like and you now are requiring more education People get into, and I mean, I watch this nursing. They come out of nursing school. We literally have trained them for a year for orientation and they're already in their master's program because they're like, I do not want to do bedside nursing. This is insane. Like I can't even be promised a break. The patients are crazy. They're adding additional tasks. They want all this extra stuff done. It's literally just like a factory. There's no stopping. The patients are all really sick. And so people are like, they don't want to do this. So and I tell people, it's like, there will always be a nursing shortage because it's hard to find people that are willing to stay bedside because it's fairly demanding, regardless of what you're doing with money. Everybody's like, let me get a, my higher education because I don't want to be bedside. It's difficult. It's difficult. And that, you know, with a population continuing to age and the things that we can do to keep people alive these days, I mean, it only gets worse. So... And we're, we're not really helping with the stagnation with medical care. It's, you know, people use ERs as an entrance to the hospital. And what's sad is people will be like, well, I don't know, what should I do? Even if they call the ER, I'm like, if you're really worried and you, and, and you know, come see us. Or you, do you know how this? They're like, hey, if you still have problems, call 911. How many docs? People will call 911 and be like, I called my doc and he said I should call an ambulance. I'm having chest pain and they can't see me, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, 
I've had a cold and congestion, but now I've got some like like I've got soreness in my chest from this cough. But they said I need to call nine one one or go to the ER because they can't see me to rule out a heart attack because they can't see me just to do this twelve lead. Yeah, I felt some tweak after I did a bench press oh, and dude, they told yeah. me to go to the ER. And then I feel bad because I'm like, listen, man, I'm at that age too where I'm like. One wrong twist and a sneeze and my back is gone. Because I don't know how many people I've seen who like threw their back out sneezing. I was like, sneezing is a dangerous thing, people. <laughs> like, you got to be careful how you cough and sneeze when you get to a certain age, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I mean, that is that prevention side. And I've, I've talked about this before. You know, like the way that we feed our kids in schools. And some people will, will like argue, oh, it's fine. Like, no, go actually look. I've, I've packed Ty's uh, lunch since he was, you know, yeah. elementary school. And, you know, because it is, it's burgers and, and hot dogs and, and pizzas. And, yeah. You know. And you train, you get trained from a very young age how to do things wrong. And then reprogramming that is a lot harder. It, is. it, it really is. is. I was like, I told people somebody that I said, I thought about this when I had my um, two bulldogs. I spent more time researching their diet, what works best for their breed what problems they have, like whether they should be like, uh, they should have more protein, less protein, the issues it causes, like skin flare-ups, than I do with the food I eat for myself. I was like, that's an issue. I was like, and I've watched people spend more time looking for, they take more consideration picking a vet than they will their primary care doctor. Primary care doctors, whoever the insurance company tells them it's going to be, or whoever, you know, like they refer them to. They, but when it comes to a vet, they're looking up like scores, names, what they do is like, it's a total backwards programming, but we are so used to them being like, this is what you get. And that truly you deserve more, even medically, you deserve more. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because I'll, you know, do an application for whatever and it says, you know, name me a doctor. And I'm like, I don't have a doctor. I mean, I literally haven't had a doctor for... You know, oh, since I was a kid, really. Yeah, like, and, my yeah, and it's nothing, I don't know anything crazy. I just yeah. eat well and exercise. Yeah. And that's, that's it. And it just kills me that, that, like you said, people are walking around, especially like my age now, like mid forties. That's when a lot of people are kind of giving up on life. It's like, you're fucking 40. And then it just hits them. Like, I remember vi- I was on a travel assignment in Minnesota and I had this biker and I had no idea that Minnesota was so huge for bikers. Like, it's huge. Like, the gang, the biker gangs there are bigger than I had. It's like a hidden treasure up there for bikers. But he laid down his bike. I want to say the guy's like in his late 50s, you know, tall guy, uh, not like athlete shape, but, you know, and in my mind, young. But he comes in and like my concern is like his blood pressure is sky high. And I mean, he did give it an ankle injury, but considering that he didn't break any bones and stuff. I'm like amazed, but I'm like, his blood pressure is like ridiculously high. So we do a, ca- a head CT because I'm like, maybe he like gave himself a little bit of a head bleed. And I'm like, is your blood, do you normally have high blood pressure? He goes, yeah, I do. And I was like, what is it normally though? Because this is really high. And he's like giving me a number, like it sits at like 190, 200 systolically. I was like, that's crazy. He goes, well, I got a med from the doc, but I didn't like really the side effects. And I was like, you are way too young to be walking around like this. You stroke out and you're not going to be able to ride your bike because your big concern today is you want out of here because you want to go check on your bike. If you stroke out, you're not going to be riding your bike. And I'm like, you're awful young for that. And he goes, young? I'm like 55. And I was like, you, I said, maybe it's because I'm from Florida where everyone lives eternally. <laughs> like, that's young. Like, that is young. Like, that is a young age, sir. Yes. And people, like you said, they don't think about it. Like, they just kind of accept that that's like the status quo. I was like, dude, no. Like my 10 year old dog got sick and I was like, you're too young to go to the light. Like, I need, I need to do things for you. People here are like 50, like, oh man, I'm old. I'm like, no, 
Yeah. Well, especially with the Met. And that's what you, that's what you see a lot is, you know, people, our generation, they're already on statins and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it's like, Uh, some of it is really light. Like, I would say a ton of it is lifestyle change because if you, even if you're predisposed hereditarily to it, you know, like I tell people, it's like, I'm a black female. I know that I already have a greater chance of things like diabetes, obesity, hypertension. That is genetic in general. It's like, but there are plenty of black females. Like my, like my grandmother's 89. She's not on anything. They literally just told her the other day that she had hyperparathyroid, which is very rare in the first place. It's not even thyroid, but she's managed to go all these years. I'm like, so if I mess this up, this is on me. Cause literally. This is a lot of this is lifestyle. Now, what does she, does she eat sensibly and Oh, totally. She believes, and she'll say, when my pants get a little tight, you know, I have way too many cute clothes and I have furs I like to wear when I go up north. I can't, I can't not fit in those. And hers, she'll tell you, she's like, mine's mostly prompted by vanity, but she also believes in being healthy and functional. Like she has a lot of friends that have passed away and she's like, for her, her biggest nightmare is that she become immobile, not able to do things. Or even like her fears, like um, Alzheimer's dementia. Mm-hmm. And I always find it interesting that even at her age, she's like, I know there's things that I can do to prevent, to help lower the risk because it runs in the family. Yeah. So for her, like being active, reading, she works out, she goes to the gym, LA Fitness, she has the membership, she does belly dancing classes. And she's 89. 89. She's like, oh, I got to go to belly dancing. So when you call if I'm not <laughs> home, I'm like, she made me order her um, one of those belly dancing chains on Amazon because she was looking for it. And I was like, I don't have time to run you to all the stores. I'll just order you one. It's crazy. <laughs> and then I always hear about the new swim instructors when they do like she won't do water aerobics for like two weeks. I'm like, what's going on? She's like, I don't like the instructor. And as soon as this other guy subs in, I, she's at water aerobics every day. Her and the old ladies are like, oh, he's just so good looking. I'm like, wow. So even at her age, like, you know what I mean? She knows how to get herself motivated. Yeah. And she's doing like, she. she's like, I got to move. If I don't move, I feel worse. Mm-hmm. You know, I eat well. If I find that I'm eating, she's like, a, she's a midnight eater. She likes her ice cream. She keeps a little pint in the fridge. And she'll be like, oh, I got to cut back on the, uh, cut back on the ice cream a little bit. They told me when I did my blood work. Yeah. yeah. She's all about it though. And she will not hesitate to go to the doctor though. And which is um, actually really commendable because in general, minorities in general are horrible about that, but especially older. And I'd say even middle-aged, they don't go to doctors. They don't get seen. They don't follow up on their meds. And she will call her doctor and it's like spa visits. I was like, how many doctors do you have? Because every week you have a doctor's visit. Who are you seeing? Like some people go get manicures. She goes to the doctor. She drove her dot crazy. Um, she's like, I got a bump on my finger. And I'm like, it looks like rheumatoid arthritis. She worried her primary care so bad, he x-rayed her finger for her. I said, have you ever heard of finger cancer? She goes, no. I said, because it doesn't exist. <laughs> so calm down. <laughs> that was her, though. But she, she's like, I just was worried about it. So, you know, vigilance, you know what I mean? It pays off. Yeah. Well, it, there's got to be some. You got to know your body and, like, know what your baseline is and what's going on and we don't do a lot of that no well we, we focus so much and and rightly so on some other things i mean like the, the shootings yeah. that we're seeing yes. but then you look at the the obesity epidemic i mean if you, you if you want to yeah That's if you want right. to compare compare numbers all those other things i mean you know guns full stop all that yeah. stuff is is minute compared to yeah. and when and we're we're shortening i think this is the first generation where yes. the children are supposed to are actually living less yeah, yeah the, the, the lifespan shortened kids. yeah and yeah. it's like pretty bad yeah it's pretty bad. And I will say, um, like, I'll work, sometimes I'll work, when I work PZR, it's amazing how many times I see kids and they're not actually with parents, they're with grandparents. 
there's like a whole lost generation or two mm-hmm. where I'm like, it's grandparents raising kids, not actually parents. Yeah. And I'm like, it's, it's, and it's some of its lifestyle, um, you know, depression, drug use. And that's, it's amazing. I'm like, you're really like, this is like, we're definitely dealing with the product of these issues. Yeah. And that's and the thing you and I Bible. see this a lot. Know? Yeah. And that, that's what I think. I, I hope that it makes this podcast slightly different than some of the others is you can get your fitness guru talking yeah. about that, but they don't see, they're not pounding on the chest of someone who's got a, a freaking sack full of meds that supposedly yeah. according to their doctor is going to save their life yeah. and they're 46 and you're, yeah. you're tubing them. And so we get a very different perspective totally. in, in first responder and, and hospital totally. where you can see through the lies and you're like, no, look, I don't know how else we can explain to you. It's not fucking working. Yes. We have to change the way we do it because and people are And if you're already healthy, the amount of things we can do for you is so much better. Like, it, and your health outcomes are better. Like, I mean, you, we were talking about firemen that get cancer and a lot of these guys end up with, it just pops out of nowhere. There's no family history, but they are actually, they respond so much better to like these experimental treatments, trial therapies, because they check all the boxes that include, they don't have like heart disease. They don't have diabetes. They're not morbidly obese. It's like, Hey, you're a candidate for this and they're prolonging lives or they're able to do experimental treatments. Like at our facility, the um, a lot of the heart transplants that we do, we have the artificial heart. There's criteria you got to meet for that. You know, you're not healthy. You're not going to, you're like the, your percentage of recovery. And we consider that to also be like the quality of life afterwards mm-hmm. drastically diminishes when you add all these other factors in yeah. people. You'd be amazed how people do well. We're like, man, they're doing wonderful, but they were healthy really before. And it's just, you know, they just need to, I tell people, you just got your tune up. You're good for another hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. You're set. So that's a big part of it is, you know, some point everybody's going to need something. I was like, everybody at some point needs somebody with some medical training because everybody was born and you hope to God someone was there who had some medical training <laughs> and everybody at some point will die. Yes. I was like, so even if you never go to the doctor, at some point you are going to have to face your health some way. So why this isn't a focus? I was like, and everybody dies. I don't know anybody that's lived forever. So it always is crazy to me how in the United States we spend so much time trying to prevent death but not actually help people live a good life yeah. i was like everyone's gonna go it's a question and if you actually give people the tools to actually live a good life you prolong that because we'll do a lot to prevent you from dying and not care what happens to you in the meantime yeah well, and that's and that's the thing i wish there was a comparison between length of life and yeah. quality of life and i guarantee you if you could the hospitals are that, trying yeah there's a big shift towards like palliative care and like is the treatment, you know, when the treatment gets worse than a disease, like, hey, let me go in peace. But I'm talking about just regular in, people. Oh, in general. Yeah. 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 So, so yes, you're alive, but you're on a motorized scooter. You're waddling around like a penguin. And I don't mean that it to, hurts in a to funny move. way. You're in like chronic pain. 10 yeah, out of 10. You can't O2 breathe. tank strapped to the back mm-hmm. of it. I mean, that's not living. It is but not. like you said, you take nutrition and exercise and, and you, incre- you know, you, you, yeah. you, you introduce them to that they'll be walking again. They'll be off that. And that's the problem. And There's no focus yes. on improvement in a lot of the chronic yes. disease management that we see. Well, because it's funny, if you're admitted to the hospital with a problem or disease or you even have surgery, you're going to see a physical therapist who's going to make you do motion. Yeah. We send you home. We don't know what the hell you do between the time we see you again. You just sat on the couch for two years. When you come in, the first thing the docs do, part of the care plan, physical therapy, occupational therapy, movement is life. But then it's not ever addressed again. 
yeah. outside of there. There's a nutritionist. They have to put in a diet order. There's someone who literally is going through like gram by gram, how many carbohydrates you're having, how much fat, how much protein. We can do a high protein diet, low protein diet. You know, are you a diabetic, high, moderate, low? Like it, these are all the things that we know in the hospital we need to make you better. You can't come in and your sugar be 600 and we let you drink whatever sodas you want. We're going to have you on a strict diet because, hey, when they left, it was normal because we controlled it. And then they go home and do whatever they want. And it's like, if it's, if we're going to make you do it there and it's not actually a medication we're pushing through an IV, it literally involves us affecting your environment and how you interact with it. It's going to in some way affect diet, nutrition, exercise. There's a lot of that in the hospital. I was going to ask that. So, so you know, we the the known thing is hospital food is awful. In some areas now, are they starting to realize that, you know, people are coming in with, with chronic diseases and they're being treated, but they're actually being fed crap while they're in hospital too? Or are they starting oh, to address our, that well, now? Well, our goal, so we actually have, they've done a really good job now. Most hospitals actually do this, not just the one I work for. They will give you a menu in your room because you know there's there's definitely a shift towards making the hospital be more of an environment for healing where the patient doesn't feel stressed you know and then everybody has something these days people are like it's so nice that they're making all the rooms single rooms like a hotel i was like well that and everybody's got mercy so we can't have you share <laughs> room anyway and unless we're gonna put you in a cubby hole or a closet we're gonna have to make you a single room anyway so Let's just get rid of that and stop giving other patients the stuff that you have. Everyone gets their own room. Hopefully that's the goal eventually. But find it like people would bring food in. We're like, no, we want you to pick from the menu. Family can't bring you in food. Because people like and in the South, it's hard. Food is love across the world. Like everyone wants their mom's home cooking or some family member makes some like certain dish, some regional dish. Food is love. So people associate that. So the first thing they want to do when you're sick is bring you food. And we're like, this is why they're in here. You cannot. Bring them your specialty eight-layer macaroni and cheese. You can leave it at the nurse's station. We'll watch it, wink, wink. But you cannot leave it in the room, you know? You can't bring them your southern-style sweet tea, which gives cavities just by drinking. Like, it is, a lot of it is, um, because people, and people develop a taste for what they like. So if you're used to cooking and having lots of salt, lots of sodium, lots of sugar, hospital food is going to taste bad to you. Because they use minimal amounts, season to taste. But if you think about it in nature, these things are not actually found. Like these are found in very small quantities in the natural world. There's a reason. There's a reason fruit has seasons. Yes. You're not picking peaches in December for a reason. <laughs> and you do. And people were doing very well. Like people, we managed to somehow propagate the human species with that process of like, Time of plenty, time of sparse. It's almost like a natural version of fasting. You're not going to have sugar at every meal. Salt electrolytes are found in like reasonable quantities in the natural world. Only us have decided to like maximize the benefits of that. And there's a there's an effect for that. So they don't like hospital food. I'm like, I will say this. I actually like some of the hospital food. There are certain things I'm like, eh, don't trust the fake meat. <laughs> I was like, but um, a lot of times it's just because it's not overly seasons are saturated with and people that go on like a really healthy lifestyle who are like, I'm going to try to eat more like, you know, grain based or vegetable based, not a lot of additives. I'm going to stick to the outside aisles of the store. Fine that, you know, your taste, you get a lot more sensitive to like sugar and sodium. You taste a lot more because you realize, wow, there's a lot added to things. Yeah. And only recently, only yes. in the industrialization of food, yes. really, has there been that For preservation. Much and to make things taste good that may have been sitting on the shelf for a while. 
you got to add something. Otherwise, it's going to taste like that can it's been sitting in. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, because I want to get to the, the, the crash in a little bit. But uh, one more thing that we talked about a while ago now, um, and I, I think I got the name right. Was it ICO, ICU psychosis? Oh, so, right yes. Word? So okay. we actually refer to it as, um, they call it a delirium scale, but it's, it's basically ICU-induced psychosis or delirium. Okay. And a lot of it is based on, so j- just as like a background, so the unit I work on, um, cardiovascular ICU, all of our patients come from the um, CVOR, so the cardiovascular operating room. So they come out, they've been, you know, they were intubated, they cracked open their chest, did surgery, bypass, whatever. Obviously, if you have an anesthesia who is good at what he does, you should not remember that that much time has passed. So when you wake up, you just know you're in a room, you know, you might be in a little bit of discomfort, there's a tube down your throat, we're waking you up to get it out, but you don't know what time of day it is. Last, you know, you went in at like 6.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. It's now midnight, but we're waking you up, we're having you wake up, you may still be on a little sedation, you're still a little sleepy. Because most hospitals, if you think about it, they have windows, they're very small, um, you, you know, it's all that fluorescent lighting 24 hours a day. There's all the stimulation. I was like, and the ICU, I feel like is a horrible place for someone who's really sick because of all the beeps, whistles, buzzing, like your mind never gets that complete rest. What we actually have is a lot of patients because they do not have a natural circadian rhythm that they can maintain. They actually start to develop like hallucinations, agitation. And it's almost like I tell people, it's like, you know how you have a two year old and you're like, you need a nap because they're really cranky and totally uncooperative and being irrational. Literally, we do that to you when you come out of a hospital, like you're in a hospital setting. That's why visiting hours are important. And why when it's rest time now, they really have a big focus on like turning down the lights, using quiet voices. We want you to sleep. You know, someone's going to be bothering you every two hours, even if you're not in ICU for blood to do your vital signs. And that lack of sleep is a very cumulative effect. Um, we find for us, it's, it's a change in thought because if you've never worked in an ICU setting where your goal is to extubate patients quickly, the only place they normally do that is like, um, recovery from the OR. They want you extubated and awake. But in our unit, our patients come out and our goal is to have you that tube out in six hours and have you awake. Because we find the the sooner we can get you on that and up and moving and metabolizing that and actually developing a, a like a rhythm for your body again, the better you do. When you don't really have a sleep cycle, you're not sleeping, you know, you're awake at odd hours, you're not really resting, your body just develops these stress response and you stay in it. And you just it really inhibits their ability to, I would say, recuperate. Older people especially, I feel horrible for, they do horribly with us just pushing narcotics. They become confused and agitated and it actually has the reverse effect. It doesn't calm them down. They're like, why am I here? I know something's wrong. You keep medicating me and now I'm just super anxious and I can't sleep. And I mean, it's just like a, it's a very, it's a real thing. And we actually, um, we test for it multiple times during the day. There's like a scale we use that we do with our assessments. And we're like, do we have ICU induced delirium? Like it is truly something we test for that you know the nurse should be actually putting in her assessment because if it is are we what interventions are we using and what pharmacology is on there but movement ambulation music occupational therapy like what interventions does the nurse take that's why we want you up into a chair our goal we want you to sit up and eat your meals we want your body to like we want you to develop a schedule your body needs that routine to reset otherwise it's always in stress mode because it's never resting 
always hypervigilant and it's just going to decrease your immune system. It's going to make it harder to heal, harder for you to manage pain. You're just always in that state. So it's a real thing. I mean, that's why I tell people, it's like, you really need to take time out, allow your body downtime because most people just live in a place where like their cortisol levels are always high. They're always in an adrenaline induced state. It's never rest. And then you wonder why you go crazy later, why you're so stressed out, why you're so edgy, why you're snappy. It's like you're a toddler who's missed their nap for like two weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> and it's funny because I've had so many people now in whatever field they're in where sleep de- deprivation is an issue. And some of them are, yeah. are way more progressive than the fire yeah. service. They've actually addressed it. But I'd never thought about it in the hospital. And I think one of my other guests mentioned it because they were trying to not take vitals yeah. and obviously you're you're yeah. very extreme but the, the and lesser our patients ones. all have inner you know like their wires and tubes are all inserted so my goal is like not to touch you if i don't have to yeah exactly except then, to just like reposition you yeah but so it's if true. they're sleeping they're able to to heal and like you said that circadian rhythm but not just in the hospital as a patient but i i think the hospital as as an employee totally. and the prisons and dispatch totally. centers and you gotta have these windows Yes. You're just you're destroying these people. You do. You walk in and literally you walk and you know, even the twelve hour shifts as nurses, we prefer it because we don't want to work five days a week. So you can work your three twelves and get your shifts over with. Yeah. But depending on when you come in, you may and depending on what time of the year it is, you walk in at Stark, you leave at Stark. If you work days and you gotta be there by six thirty, it's not light out. And when you leave, the sun's starting to set. Yeah. You may never actually see natural sunlight, which is really important for things like bone density and growth and the release of things like melatonin (laughs) and serotonin all the hormones that you need to actually you know have a normal mood development let alone sleep cycle and nights is even worse i mean other countries where was i reading i think it was like uh uh it was either iceland greenland norway one of those they actually consider um if you work night shift so shift workers airline people who work on airlines like stewardesses and um pilots they all consider that to be um basically those patients are pe- people considered to be high risk for cancer yeah it's they a, actually it's consider a it to be 2a carcinogen as like which is the same as smoking. literally shift work mm-hmm. like listen people in the united states we don't even really talk about it because you know we're we're still arguing whether people deserve health care so <laughs> other countries are like hey we we've already established that you're all going to get that now we're looking at what population of people what problems we should be looking at Based on what you do for a living and how you live your life. If you do this job, these are the things I'm going to be looking for for you. Yeah. You're more inclined to have cancer if you work shift work. Yeah, that's what gets me with the, with the presumptive stuff. Like, you know, all these people are blocking these men and women that are trying to claim, oh, you need to prove that it was that, that fire. And my thing is, okay, let's, let's take that off the, the table completely. Let's just say yeah. you're on shifts. There's yeah. your presumption. Yeah. So if you're going to ask these men and women yes. to do this job, either A, keep working them these crazy hours and keep telling them they can't go home, yeah. or B, make a first responder work week like a 36-hour yeah. week, 42, whatever, yeah. so they actually have enough time to recover so they're all not dropping yeah. dead. But you can't have yeah. both. You can't ask them to work these much longer weeks than the average civilian and then also when they all start dropping like flies, say, oh, yeah, by the way, fuck you. And, you know, there's a big push for their like, you guys need to be responsible for your health. You need to know when you need help. You need to know when you know you need to, when you're at a place where you're fatigued and you can't take shimmers. I was like, yeah, because they're people too. And just because you were, you're actually probably more prone to going through things like a divorce, being in these type of fields, which we know can be one of the most stressful things. People get married, they have babies, they have family members die. They still have to live their life. They're running on people who are experiencing these things and having the most dramatic moments of their life. They have these moments and then the, the job they work in 
is like living that moment for that entire shift. Yeah. It's like, so why you would be surprised that they develop the physical symptoms of living a life of stress when you personally will tell somebody, well, the reason you're having palpitations or the reason this heart attack was brought on by the stress of your divorce. Okay, like, how are you surprised that this person has this issue? Like, this is what they live in. Like, this is their baseline. Yeah. Their hormone levels are this baseline for most of their life at work as like someone going through a traumatic event at home. So, awesome. yeah, it's very, you know, the whole person approach. It's it's making its way into the mainstream. It's just making it mainstream because even if you do it hospital wide, it's the problem is that there's no guarantee that it's going to continue. You can only do what you can do when you have them. And it makes it hard. And that's why I, I'm a big proponent of like, you know, providing some sort of universal health care because you want the person through the continuum. It's hard when you only see them when they're sick. Because then when they're better, there's no reason to keep them. Mm-hmm. Hospitals don't keep well people. No. And the well people don't want to be in a hospital. That's the miracle so of prevention. <laughs> but And then there's no one making sure you're staying well that you don't have to come back. So yeah. and every time we see you, you're worse and worse because it's like a cumulative effect. So yeah. it's hard. Now, we're well, speaking of, of um, health issues because we've talked, I mean, I've talked a lot about, you know, first responders specifically because I don't work in a hospital. But a very obvious observation, especially here in the U.S., yeah. is that many, many of our nurses and doctors are horrendously sick themselves obese smokers so what's your kind of observation when you first entered nursing of of the health of the men and women in in the hospital (laughs) i always go back to like because you know my crew my husband my family they're all like oh i bet you're like nurse ratchet so it's always like the like disgruntled like pinched face nurses like (laughs) smoking her cigarette like stop bothering me and i'm like and i for a while that would not be far off i was like you know it's like the joke where people say Oh, night shift isn't bad. I've been, I'm doing it and I'm fine. It's like an 80 year old man. Yes. And he's like, but I'm only 24. <laughs> like it can be very hard because the problem is just like EMS is you're constantly pouring from a pot that maybe you're not filling. And a lot of people don't, people, a lot of people look at things like exercise, eating well, even meditation as like work instead of self care. So for me, I'm like, I can't pour from an empty pot. I cannot fill up your cup from one. I have to have some sort of self-care for me. And there's a lot more emphasis on people being healthy and, and able to manage the job. I will say as much as people don't like the new generation of like millennials and whatever, they're, the, I feel like it's a little bit of generation envy is what I'm going to call it. I call it generation envy because they are way more aware of the fact that they like, people call it selfish, but they're like, I got to live for me and I got to take care of me as well. And so people are like, all they want to do is like, you know, do their hobbies and travel. It's like, yeah, and they tend to adjust better. They tend to leave situations that are not going to get any better quicker than other generations. You know, a lot of older people are like, you just grin and bear it. It's my job. Mm-hmm. They're like, mm, this isn't working for me. Like, I, I'm not in vibe with like, you know, the policy of this department or like the mission of this organization I'm with, the ethics they're way more willing to make that change for their greater overall mental health and good. Whereas in other they're like, I just grin and bear it until I'm so miserable that I'm either, I either get fired or I'm non-functional. So, and to me, I feel like they just, they're just a little bit more in tune with the fact that like how you live your life is as important as how long you are, you live your life. It's like retirement's a great thing. You're like, I've been here 30 years. I want to retire, but you retire totally broke down, miserable and live two years. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what happens, you know, yeah. with a lot of first responder communities too. And it's a big push in like uh I see I see a lot more residents come out that are like workout fanatics. 
Like it's a big push, I think, for like docs and stuff is like focusing a lot on the physical health. And, you know, they really do go a lot into like your patients being well. I mean, there's entire divisions of our medical care now that are devoted to bariatric patients. Like we have these whole conversations about, hey, how big is the patient? Like me looking at your history and I look at your weight, it, it that gives me a huge picture of how this is going to go. And it changes how we do everything. You come out and we're like, they were a really large patient. They had open heart surgery. We already are going to anticipate way more respiratory complications than someone who's normal. Because it's like your lungs now have all that weight on them. They're going to be compressed harder for them to open. We really need to focus on making sure we get them to open up those lungs, move all that junk, cough, deep breathe. These patients are more prone to give themselves like pneumonias. They're more prone to get things like pulmonary embolisms or blood clots in places because of lack of mobility, you know, self-care. I mean, I look at people coming for like an abrasion on the leg or the butt cheek and it's people get these all the time. Like they'll get like a little like, um, abrasion or a, or an abscess or something right underneath their butt cheek depending 50 pounds can make all the difference in the world as to whether you're going to be a surgical candidate or you can treat this at home with antibiotics and doing like warm sits baths yeah. if you can't reach it you're going to be here for surgery more than likely if you are able to like perform self-care reach the area manage it make sure it stays nice and clean non-sweaty you actually do pretty well even if we got to do it like a little drain or something but if you cannot reach it those 50 pounds can do a lot like they make a big difference and something as simple as like an outpatient procedure so like you can be in the er and discharged home it's amazing to me i tell people it's like this is just something super easy to look at whether or not 50 pounds can make all the difference in the world mm-hmm. well i think if, if you want to a visual representation of where a lot of our ill health shift has been the last 50 years. Just look at an ER wheelchair. Dude. And put oh, a, dude, put a he- normal person. I, I mean that normal because most people are no, either side so right. of 200 pounds. But a normal human with normal body body fat on yes. them in one of those chairs. Yes. And it looks like a comedy sketch. Dude, they're... You're so right because they just made us do all this education last year, like mandatory classes on patient transfer devices, basically because they're like the amount of injuries. Like, look at the stretchers. All of them now are motorized Mm -hmm. because so many people were hurting their backs. The mechanics, them fixing the trucks and making it so that the back dumps didn't help because it's like the patients are getting bigger. And you need like four or five people to lift the stretcher. So they're on now on hydraulics. I remember going with with Wendy, who you talked about earlier, on, on a call in 50s first. And uh, they called, I think, the 50, Engine 50 crew was there. I think we were on 70 on rescue. And this gentleman was 1,000 pounds. Oh, yeah. And so when you see it, you know, it literally looked like a pancake on his yes. bed. It was when we, when we disassembled everything, there was like a six-inch pile of dead hair flakes yes. when he'd been lying there for years. Yeah. And we literally had to pour him through a door. And halfway through the door, it was yeah. almost comical because he yes, looked like, like an hourglass. Woo! Yeah, yeah, he conforms. Know? At least he's conforming to the container he's in, kind of. It's just got to be a big container. Yeah, but I mean, but that's, you know, we had to take all the hardware out the back. We had to, yep. I think that was literally. Yeah, and like when you have to pull somebody into your ambulance, take out everything and literally put a mattress on the floor of your ambulance the patient can sit on because they're so big. This wasn't even a mattress. He didn't fit anything. So it was just a tarp that we had him on with the handles. Yeah. And like you got to call the truck, the engine, the rescue. Yeah. Yeah. And again, so then you think about that, that one patient and obviously kindness and compassion. You want to be there for everyone. But that one human just transporting what 
I don't know, it wasn't a code or anything, so it no. wasn't like a major emergency. I forget what the, the oh, chief complaint take, was now. And they'll ask for a lift assist at the hospital. It's going to take at least six people. Yeah. So that's two or three and units. And you're putting as many people can fit on the sides because only so many people can sit side by side. It doesn't even like you're like, we are trying to make this as safe as possible. So if we can have eight people and you're like, we don't have space for eight people to actually grab hold of the tarp. Yeah. And get me vials. Well, yeah. The, the cut's not going to fit. Yeah. yeah exactly. what, you know what I mean? <laughs> So he draw says blood. he's good. You're not going to yeah. draw blood. There's no veins, you know. Oh, so, dude! I but mean, they d- they created a whole class on um, mobility assistance devices, and they're all ways that we can actually help ambulate patients who are large body mass weights. And I mean, like for the nurses, like not even so, just helping them stand people hurting themselves. I was with a nurse in CVICU. This wasn't even a big guy, but those patients just had open heart surgery. I don't want you using your arms, pulling apart your sutures. Mm-hmm. So it's at least two people to help you stand. And the patient stood up and went off balance. And the nurse grabbed him to prevent him from falling and yanking on all of his internal wires. Yeah. His like central line, everything. Totally dislocated, pulled her shoulder out and ended up having to have surgery. And that wasn't even because the patient was overweight. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, that's just in day-to-day operation. Then take into account you have the patient sizes are getting much bigger. I had a guy, and if my memory serves me right, he was only 19. And it was in California still. I think I think we talked about it when I was with my crew that one time, the, the interview we did. Um, but we were walking him to the, the rescue, and uh, he suddenly decided that he, he didn't tell us that he yeah. was tired and he wanted to sit in his chair halfway between his bedroom and... And so he turns and pivots and basically almost sits on me, 600 pounds, in his lazy boy. And so I can't remember, I, I think I managed to like <laughs> leap out of the way. But 600 pounds, you know, but that's a 19-year-old yeah. person. And this is the thing. Yeah. This is not laughing at them. No, this is, but you're like, the situation like, what am I going to do with this? Yeah, but how have we got to a point where that 600-pound yes. guy... That's a normal, like, oh, I've got a wheelchair for you. Yeah. Because we and have the fact numerous that people. Everybody you know who works in the EMS healthcare has multiple stories yeah, is a problem. Exactly the same. Because these yes. aren't even like, these aren't even like, I this one time, it's like, yeah, like everybody's got multiple stories. It's, it's literally populations. It's, and they are their own population. They have their own like, Docs that see them and things that they take into account. And I mean, every subspecialty of, medi- of medicine now has bariatric patient, yeah. obese patient, because the risk and complications, you just double them. Yeah. Because that's pretty much, and the more morbidities, the more things you're doing, the greater the chance it's going to be. Mm-hmm. You go to Ripley's, they always have a, the statue yeah. of the world's biggest man. And I think it was like the 30s or 40s. It looks like half of walmart yeah and again I'm, yeah. none of this is making fun no, of people this is, this is literally systemic. just the generic this is the standard now yeah unfortunately like we it's not even because the, in those days like if you couldn't mo- mo- like ambulate mo- you weren't going to live long there weren't going to be a lot of people able to do things for you yeah. you know people weren't gonna it wasn't the motorized wheelchair land that it that it is now scooters segways finding ways like you had to move to some extent mm-hmm. or you died where you were like it it, would, it was what it was there wasn't like specialized medicine for you there's plenty of places we have docs now that um we actually don't get as many in cv icu as other places because you know unless you're an emergent case the docs they have to clear you so cardiology may be like no i'm not going to clear you or anesthesia may say this patient is such a risk that if i innovate and give them these meds they won't wake up because of how heavy they are. And I don't feel like they, their body, their lungs, their heart can take that. 
that they're not a candidate. They have to lose this much weight before we do the surgery. I've seen a couple cases. I had a patient once who had to have heart surgery so she could actually get um, the gastric bypass surgery. And it was, she didn't do too well. Because, I mean, coming out, we were like, we didn't even attempt to extubate her that day. Well, and those are two individual proce- processes that could both yeah. be fixed with nutrition. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? You really need to be a little healthier to do the heart surgery, but we can't get you healthier to do the gastric bypass without the heart surgery. And it's kind of like at this point, yeah, but if you we would be refused, ate, but technically speaking, we can't refuse you because it's emerged. Like they've told you, if you do not get this gastric bypass and lose, you'll be dead in six months. So, you know, we're picking the lesser of two evils. Like, which one's going to allow us to do something? So, and that's just the population issue. I mean, and you know, um, food is an emotional crutch for people, it's literally a drug. Well, I think that's exactly it, is when we talk about a mental health crisis, obesity is, is in that, addiction is in that, alcoholism is in that, obviously suicide, and yeah. but that's that's what we've got to understand. We're one of the wealthiest nations on the planet. We should be one of the happiest nations on the planet, but get, again... things don't get, don't, don't mean like, you know, they don't equate happiness. No, and, and clearly they don't, because, yeah. you know, I mean, just... Like you said, you go go out into the the world, and, and let me preface this: there's there's amazing people in this country, and a lot of people are completely grateful and, and out there doing amazing things. But how many people do you see out there that look just fucking miserable whilst they've driven to the store and they drive back to their house with their clothes on their back and their food in their stomach? Because you know whatever else is going in their life, and, and I I think that a lot of it too is you know when people are inundated with the whole idea. So I will admit I'm horrible with social media. Like, it took me forever to get a Facebook page. And even now, people will text me or call me because they know it takes me four days to look at it again. <laughs> but I also feel to an extent the idea that, you know, you'll be on vacation and people are spending so much time trying to get pictures of the vacation or videos that they're not actually enjoying the view. I'm like, you're viewing this beautiful view through your phone. It's like watching a rock concert through your yeah, phone. Yeah, that's like craziness. Like, so, does you think someone's really going to yes. sit through your recorded concert? Yes. No, and they're so, going to buy a ticket and go themselves. Yes. So there's a like a but it's all related to that release of hormones. The same endorphins and hormones are released from the brain as are released when you eat certain foods or take certain drugs. There's like, you know, a dopamine release, a dopamine release from that. And so people are always looking for ways to do that. They're always looking for a way to give themselves a little flow. And so for them, food is one way. That's why we call it comfort food. It's like there's things you associate with your family, like the holidays. I know I'm going to get certain food. It's going to be comforting. Why? It's not because it's like there's a reason why. And it's a, it's we're all just a set of hormones and chemicals. And, you know, certain chemicals are released when you smell certain things cooking because, you know, it's coming. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to eat and get sleepy. I'm going to have the best sleep ever for the year because I know like this is what I want. This it just makes me feel a certain way. And I'm like, yeah, it releases certain hormones, chemicals. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, even with um, the preparation of food, we've, we've yes. got disconnected with that, too. Totally. I honestly think that there's a big fear of cooking, oh, yeah. you know. And yes, of course, it's an effort thing as well. But admitting that you don't know much, I'm not a great, I don't have a repertoire yeah. of, of things that I cook, but I do cook. But that process of, of taking those ingredients and yeah. preparing them, and like you said, smelling the garlic when that yes. first in, the onions, and then as you build it and, and build it. And this is why places that are like... Um, you know, like the fresh Tex-Mex, the fresh ingredients, those places are doing wonderful. What you have is like regular fast food. They're like claiming that millennials are killing it, like these chain restaurants Good. because they all want. <laughs> yeah, they all want fusion foods. They like to go to the taco truck it's like because it's made there fresh. It's good. It's like exotic spices. It's it's really good food. It's like food that someone made who actually knows how to cook. 
Yeah. Didn't come out of a freezer and get deep fried. I was like, because we all want that. Like, literally, we all want that. We all associate that with good memories, good times, because of the chemical neurotransmitter hormone release. Yeah. I mean, that's literally how memories are made, is it's like literally a chemical release in your brain. So I was like, what, certain foods generate that for certain people. Yeah. It is what it is. I was like, so people love that idea. There is a fear because there's not any, I mean, they took, it's funny when they took home ec out of um, like school curriculum, people were like, yeah, like what'd they do anyway? And I was like, you'd be amazed. I remember making like homemade donuts and meals in home ec. I'm like really aging myself. I was like in elementary school though. I mean, even like this horrible dinosaur pillow, which I still have. But you learned how to do little things like that. You I know? did home economics at school. See? I was okay. one of the few dudes, but I realized that the class was full of women. <laughs> and you're like, here we go. <laughs> and that was like, high they're going to give me too, an so hour a day to just talk to chicks. Uh-huh. Like, I'm in, eat. man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I learned how to make profiteroles one time. That's awesome. Oh, that's so you know? cool. That's, that's a pretty yeah, gangster dish. And that's a dish. pretty good thing to pull out on a date. Mm-hmm. Like, let me show you how to make these. Yeah, that's a pretty good thing to pull out on a date, too. Yeah, but, I mean, look at the firehouse, though. I mean, that's, oh, dude, that's yeah. what it's built around and, and it's not crews just want station dinners it's so funny to me it's a bunch of firemen and i tell people all the time i was like you'd be surprised how little fast food gets eaten at a fire station because the big thing is the station dinner and it's comb cooked mm-hmm. even if it's crock potted it is a home cooked meal i vividly recall one time we were super busy and i was like man would you want to just pick up something and my husband was like no i want a home cooked meal literally like he stuck to his guns and they found a way to get the truck to go get the stuff and they did like a quick pork chop thing but they wanted a home cooked meal it's like there is something associated with that with the preparation this is being made by someone like you trust and love there's a whole family element socialization and you just don't get that from like fast food no i think i think that's that's what we're seeing you know i think the fire station is a great a great kind of representation of a lot of society and the things that we do very well, uh, elements yeah. like that, and the things that we did very well, yeah. like processing yeah. trauma around that dining room table. Yeah. When we're getting away from that, we're now seeing problems within our own firehouses. Yeah. Like, that's when you know your crew. Yeah. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> and I tell people, I was like, it's awkward Thanksgiving dinner every shift <laughs> at a firehouse. And people just learn to go with it. Then you just realize that's what it's going to be, and you enjoy it absolutely like you make yourself enjoy it (laughs) all right well speaking of the fire department i wanted to get to to the wreck so um where a point you know where where in your career was that and what were you doing that specific day i actually so i was a lieutenant at the time um at a station hey she hears the pizza delivery guy (laughs) (laughs) um and it's interesting because i actually was is a very busy station and had a truck engine rescue. Um, all male crew. My crew was wonderful. You know, and it, w- it was, it was like a big family. You're very close to each other. And I'd actually been called by uh, someone else at another, de- at another fire station who'd had a problem with a chief, but an issue. And I was like, you know what? I think if we have this conversation with the fire chief, I don't think that they're going to treat you as badly as you're perceiving it. Like, I think there's just been some misunderstanding. Why don't we have the chief for dinner? I'll do that. Talk about it. You can see his perspective because I don't want you feeling like the worst thing ever is to feel like you're at a place where people don't care about you. And I'm like, you're a good employee. And I think this would just go badly. You know, we're going to intervene on this. We're going to have this conversation. Invited the fire chief at the time, Chief Droids, great chief. He was like, cool, I'll meet you guys for dinner. I'd have gotten a time trade so that I could come in, do dinner and sit and talk to him and not be interrupted by calls. And actually, while I was on my way to the station, um, I was on I-4 and this truck came off 
uh, the 408 and didn't notice the traffic had stopped. And like, I want to say hit the back of my truck at like 80 miles. They told me 60, 80 miles. It looked like a little clown car. They showed me a picture. What, what was so, the car you were driving? I was in a Ford Escape. So it went from like a four seater with like a really big back trunk to like a two seater. Smart car. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, and I don't remember much of it. I do recall waking up with a tube down my throat and being in restraints because apparently I kept trying to extubate myself, <laughs> which just happened. Um, but I'm like, all right. And they, they said, you know, I got once the, uh, the actually, it made impact that, um, I actually hit my face on the steering wheel, like forward, but I had my seatbelt on. So that probably protected me from going out the front window. Um, but I ended up having a basilar skull fracture, two brain bleeds, and uh, fractured my jaw pretty good and caused like, um, and because of the swelling around that caused some facial palsy. So then two days after that, I was, I woke up and was like, I really can't feel my like right side at all. Like I'm really having trouble moving it. They ran me down to MRI. They're like, oh, you actually have a, a clot. So like an actual stroke, they're like, we want to break it up. The only problem is you just had trauma from brain bleed. And the only solution for this is to give you IV heparin, which is a no-no when you have a brain bleed. But if we don't, then you could be stuck like this. And I remember looking at my husband and being like, all right, well, time to put on your big girl panties. Let's do this. Because they told the doc and Chris was like, wait, 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 wait. And I said, listen, go big or go home. Like at this point, you know, I'm like, I woke up completely intact. I can't feel anything on the right side. You know what? And it was funny because they told me later, they're like, the, uh, the my surgeon, neurosurgeon had called and actually spoke to a couple of neurosurgeons, other hospitals like Shans, because they're like, we don't, you're like a 0.01, like a case study now. And I'm like, am I going to get a discount on my bill? Because like, <laughs> somebody's doing a paper about me. Going to be in Hello Magazine. <laughs> yeah. But it resolved. I did well. Went home. Um, and then... Um, th- my other complication then came because they wanted to put me on blood thinners. Well, I never thinned out on Coumadin, which is an oral medication to thin your blood. So I was maxed out. So then I had to go see a hematologist. And she's funny. She's, um, you know, she, and I didn't know this. She said they're actually having a lot of problems with younger people, like under the age of 40, who have to be on blood thinners because they don't, we don't thin out well. Because our body compensates um, for us trying to thin out our um basically our coagulation by pulling from our bones because a lot of people don't realize your blood cells are actually made in your large bones so our body just takes what it needs to from our bones leaches it and we're able to actually maintain and we don't thin out like older people do so she's like so yeah uh, there's quite a lot of adults that are younger that are immune to coumadin i was like basically us and rats because they actually use the same medication and rat poison Mm -hmm. they just give it to them and they bleed out swell up get thirsty die and she's like so yeah i'm gonna have to put you on like injections so i was on um lovinos injections for like once twice a day for i want to say six months what how did they attribute you not bleeding when they gave you the heparin uh, as a 50-50 shot. Well, because the bleeds were not so big that they were worried about brain swelling and herniation. And they were very small. So they're like, those look like they will clear up on their own. They're not actively bleeding. Because, you know, they do a series of scans to see if you're still bleeding. And then when I developed the clot, they were like, uh, the fear we have is that if we give her the heparin, they're going to open up again. So, and I'm like, nope, that's fine. I'll take it. And Chris looked at me like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, listen, man. What about the trauma from the, the jaw as well? Is that So I broke more? my jaw. So I had to be in a C-collar for six months, which drove me nuts. I remember asking my neurosurgeon, I was like, you told me that there's nothing wrong with my C-spine. Why do I have to wear a C-collar? He's like, well, your basilar skull fracture is so low, even though it's not displaced, meaning the bones are not 
out of the wrong place, the hairline fractures are there. If you were to do any injury there and they did displace, it could sever your spinal cord. So I was like, well, all right then. I'll keep the sucker on. Yeah, so like <laughs> I ordered two more from Amazon with extra pads because I was like, I don't want to be like the person with the dirty sea collar. <clears throat> so, um, you know, that was having that and then learning I was like the balance I was so off balance I because I perforated my eardrum so I couldn't even close my eyes and tell if I was sitting up or down and then of course I was on steroids for this right afterwards so literally I'm like in an eye patch in a c-collar starving all the time because I'm on steroids and like I feel so horribly for anyone on steroids I have so much sympathy because all you want to do is eat like I'd be eating and I'd say to my husband what are we having for dinner and he's like it's you're eating right now it's like yeah but I don't want to get hungry like I wanted to eat the furniture and then constantly having um I had a really bad ability to um differentiate between cold and hot it would feel uncomfortable but I couldn't tell you if it was hot or cold Hmm. which is a problem if you want to go back to firefighting, yes. I was like, is this going to get better? They're Just like, every head, yeah, they're like, every head injury is different. We're hoping. Um, but had that going on. So, you know, got my eye patch, my C collar, had horrible vertigo because I had a perforated eardrum and it would like, you know, occasionally drink, drain CSF, no balance, no strength. And I was like, man, this is what it's like. Cause literally I went running the morning before I went, you know, I went out on the road. And then I wake up and I couldn't even make it down the hall without being weak. What was the eye patch for? What was the, the damage? Well, to the because eye? so when the um, I broke my jaw here, and what you get is you get swelling around the actual nerves in your face. So they look like if you were like to take your hand to the side of your face and like spread your fingers. That's your nerves, how they actually innervate. So when I perforated my eardrum and I did the skull fracture, what you get is swelling around it. And so it's like the same thing you see people with Bell's palsy that's caused by a virus. It's like swelling around those actual nerves. In the face and so they inhibit their function and so you get that droop that like where you're not able to like articulate and move and it's not a stroke it's false palsy but then i had developed a stroke too so you know i just did everything i went through the gamut i just wanted to do it all um but then of course you know i had slurred speech and i'm like <laughs> i was apparently like the worst patient according to my husband it was you know it was a trial it was getting used to the limitations i can see why people get depressed can see why people get frustrated. I'm in the medical field and doing my follow-up care was exhausting. Like I literally wake up and I would expend all my energy just making doctor's appointments because everything is like, well, insurance. Well, it was an auto accident. So we don't do anything with auto accidents, filing claims. It's like, I'm not filing claims. I have insurance. I have medical insurance. That's for like those people to deal with. My car insurance company and his. I'm not filing anything through him. Like, But you see again, how horrible is that that you're trying to recover and that's even a thing. And that's, you know, just, just to interject. Totally. So that's the universal healthcare thing yeah. is you can have a car crash and you just focus on getting sick. Yeah. There's none of this bullshit. And that's, yeah. that's what we see this, so much. Everyone's like, who are we billing? Yeah. Who not, are we billing? Not let's get rid of that eye patch yeah. for Steph. And then when I had to go on the shots for the blood clot, um, because I couldn't do Coumadin, which was, it's actually very reasonably priced, like $10 a bottle. They're like, no, you have to do Lovenox shots because your blood's not thinning out. So the Lovenox shots, $1,000 a shot. Which I laugh every time people say nurses, they're worried about nurses like um, stealing narcotics from like the Pixis, diverting narcotics and opioids. I said, let me tell you something. One, I don't make enough money to have those kind of drug problems. That's an expensive one. And two, based on what I know the medication cost, if you guys end up with a shortage of Lovenox that's not accounted for, you might want to look my way, knowing that it's $1,000 a shot. 
fentanyl delight all that crap no i don't have no i don't uh, they don't pay me enough to have those kind of drug addiction issues well and plus you can just go to <laughs> go to most places to get it prescribed anyway. there we go you know i was mean? like this is why everyone does meth and heroin easy yeah easier cheaper i was like finding out that lovenox is a thousand dollars a shot was a culture shock because my insurance didn't want to cover it so they're like well you have this but why won't they and i'm like it's ordered by a hematologist because i won't like the other doesn't work and when i went to see my doc and said they don't want to pay for it he's like if they don't pay for it i gotta admit you and put you on a heparin drip otherwise you're at risk for stroking out so i'm on the phone slurred speech eye patch see collar arguing with my insurance company about this and i got so mad that i literally sat in bed with all of this and my had the manual for my insurance policy printed out and was like all right i'm pissed and looked through my entire manual and was like, all right, so the way this works is if it's a new prescription, they'll pay for it. So I literally had my doctor writing my script for my Lovenox injection and changing it by 0.1 every time I saw her because I could get it. And I'm like, even though you only want me to get one ML, I know how to give it to myself and give one ML. I need you to write the script for 1.1. Otherwise, it's a thousand dollars out of pocket. Like, I, and she was, I was like, "That is ridiculous that they're making me do this." So, recovered from it, did well, was out for about six to eight weeks. The fire department came back, um, worked with Chief Haskett, helping him out, which I love because I'm anal retentive about scheduling, and he loved the fact that I was like kept his binder and everything, um, and then was going to go back to the station. And actually went to help this guy out again because I'd had my accent, so I didn't get to talk to the chief for him. Went, we had a meeting about why he was, what he, ended up happening was he, his wife had actually, he was having an issue with his marriage. His wife had said, hey, you know, I want to talk about us splitting up. And he called in that day and been like, hey, I got in a family emergency I can't be in. He was given a hard time about it, apparently, by the chief. I was like, you know what? I'm thinking that maybe there was like a miscommunication about this because I can't think of any chief that wouldn't be like, hey, take care of what you need to take care of home. I was mistaken. (laughs) And so we ended up having to sit down and have this conversation. And the basic conversation that I got from them was that to him was like, hey, we can ask whatever we want. And I mean, I came from a place of like, I'm not going to get into arguing with you, pissing into the wind about who, who, because they really didn't care, which was irritating. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, you all, if he showed up here with that kind of luggage and was mean or nasty to a patient or malpractice, who would he? Who would that be on? Because the first thing you would say is, well, if you knew you weren't fit for duty, you shouldn't have come to work. So that's what he did. And you're punishing him. For well, and that's, that's my thing as well. So say he pulled his back. He sneezed like we talked about. I can't come in. Okay, what did you do? He pulled me back. Okay, I'm in bed. I can't move. But because it's a mental thing, which mm-hmm. it is, you know. I was like, dude, then- we run on people who call because they're like, I'm so stressed out. I'm depressed because my my wife or husband wants to divorce me. People are admitted for psyche valves for this. All I say is I can't just come to work today. And you want to rake him over the coals? What the hell is wrong with you people? And it's a whole process thing. That actually ended. They were like, all right, you know, we had our conversation. What got me was that I was called later and basically told I should not have had this convert or basically been involved in representing this person um, because... They felt that as a black female, I should never have gone against, or this one person felt that I should never have been willing to disagree with this black female because she was a chief, which was like, to me, I was like, that makes no sense because you make it sound like, it's like, so if you're saying, are you, if I didn't want to have the conversation with her, 
because I don't respect her, that would be a problem. I'm having the conversation because I think that she's totally confident in doing the job and understanding the conversation. In my world, if I don't speak to you, it's because I just think you can't comprehend it. Like if I'm not, if I'm quiet, so I think you're too stupid or you can't comprehend it. I'm having the conversation because I actually think like, hey, you, I think you're intelligent enough to do this. Going to them instead of just talking behind their back or creating issues in the fire department doesn't work for anybody. Let's work this out. Like this is a, this would make sense to any logical person if we talked about it. This is not something that I don't think can be worked out. Because I think if you have all the facts, you would come to a logical adult decision. So that bothered me. And then when it went up the chain, it got all the way to certain parts of the top. And they were kind of like, we're not going to address it. I was like, well, I think my work is done here then. Sounds like you and I had a similar moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I think that at this point, um, if this is how it's going to function, and this is the kind of behavior that's encouraged, I think that I need to exit left. And I did. And it definitely sparked some discourse because there was obviously conversations with them afterwards. And they were like, hey, you know, they agreed that the behavior that took place was wrong. And for me, I my biggest problem was like they kept bringing up other issues with these people. And I'm like, listen, let me just stick to what my problem is. Do I know about all the other stuff? There's rumors, but I don't know that for fact. Like, you all have a lot more people that you can talk to than me. I'm only dealing with what I'm dealing with. I can't stay in this environment. This doesn't work for me. It's a very toxic environment. And I don't want to be the person that stays, has a bad experience, and then becomes like a problem employee. So I was like, I'm going to leave like in good stead, professionally. Glad we had the conversation. But I got a rule. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you just got to pick yourself. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because I, um, I had a similar situation where... And it wasn't, I wasn't in trouble or anything at all, but I had Thai and I was, I've talked about this a lot, you know, I was, I was single dad, I was going through. Yeah, you, I remember that, yeah. School, you know, and, and it was when they were monitoring us all the time. And I'm like, you don't understand, like, you can't, you can't tell me I can't go home. I've got a child. I'm doing the 56 hour weeks that yeah. you've asked me, you told yeah. me that I have to do as a firefighter, yeah. but you can't, you, you don't understand what you're doing when you tell someone yeah. you can't go home for another 24 hours. And, yeah. And I remember and it because it, it affects way more than you. No, exactly. And it strains relationships that are already strained. Yeah. And creates issues with your kids, your family, because they don't understand that. Like, why don't I ever see you? They don't want to hear. Well, they don't have enough staffing here, and like, I'm. It's. Yeah. It is very much a strain. Yeah, and even Anaheim. Like, I mean, I adore that department. But when I first got hired there, you know, the group, you know, the, the guys that were right before me were getting their asses handed to them. Then we got hired. And then, you know, we, we have to think it was six months you couldn't do overtime. Yeah. And then the next six months, I think my base when I got hired was 55 and I cleared 100 grand from mandatory alone because I didn't yeah. sign up. It Just you brutal. basically couldn't go home. It was like literally, I think it was sometimes it was a 72, 24, 72. Yeah, just just craziness. Have you but, ever seen that movie Bringing Out the Dead with Nicolas Cage? Yes. <laughs> and yes. he's like, all right, you're, I told you if you called out a relate again. And he goes, but I need you for the shift. And he's like, no, you promised you would fire me this time. You promised. He's like, I'll fire you tomorrow. I really need you to work. You promised. I was like, <laughs> it literally is the truth. It is. It is. You're like, you promised you would fire me. I can't. And they're like, we would, but we really need you to work. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's what it was like. So we, I never forget, because I mean, it, it was, God, let's say that the gods weren't happy, but yeah. we had, um, I was on the engine, first time driving in forever, like months oh, and months wow. and months. And I was a ride-up driver, yeah. finally got to ride-up. First first call was a, a code, GI bleed, nasty. Yeah. Um, ran it with, with those guys. And then um, when I got back, they were like, hey, we need you back on the rescue. Yeah. 
and you're going to be mandatory next shift. And I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm yeah. done. <laughs> you so do. I, you reach a point where you're like, okay, I'm out. Yeah. And I tell people, I was like, there is a point where everyone has that. The key is finding that within yourself to say, okay, I'm good at it. I'm done. And your goal is that they will establish that before they're in a crisis situation. Mm-hmm. So forcing someone to work when they're having something going on, they're already predisposed to it. They, you know, they're going to run on like their, that toe pain at three in the morning with somebody who's a jerk about it. And they're going to be like, you know what? I'm done. I got real stuff going on. I'd be, I'm happy with you just staying home, man, and deal with what you got. When you mandatory people, you don't even allow that self-reflection to take place because you're basically saying, I'm not really giving you a choice. Yeah. And what, what gets me about the mandatory specifically is this. When Hurricane Doe Ryan oh was, was coming towards oh us, <laughs> it was a great meme, the guy with the yes. A.A. Ron. <laughs> <laughs> you done messed up, A.A. <laughs> Ron. <laughs> but, you know, when it was coming, of course, like yeah. we all know when the hurricanes are coming, it sucks, but yeah. we're going to be there longer. And that's because we're needed. If you're in yeah. California, the wildfires are happening. We're going to be yeah. needed. The, an earthquake, whatever it is. Yeah. But so many of these departments I've been with there over time i mean the the mandatory is over and over and over yes. again and what kills me is there is no accountability for yes. the people in the administrative positions that are making these decisions and it always falls squarely on the shoulders of the correction officers the dispatchers mm-hmm. the firefighters the front police line. officers it's always yeah. front line and you know go out make it work make it look good go out make it work make it look good yeah and there's no incentive for them to fix it because i still go home at five every day i'm good yeah and and they really it really needs to be understood that not only is it affecting us i mean literally killing us yes but also the delivery of service is greatly reduced because they're all burnt out and exhausted they so true like very and i mean you start out you're already starting out behind the eight ball i'm like i don't know where you think this is going to go because it it doesn't help as well you know um that these people have they still have their families to take care of and to manage and to get prepared for the hurricanes and let's be honest you guys are at the station. I mean, I'm married and I consider myself to at least be able to survive when my husband's gone. I actually totally enjoy having the bed to myself when he's on shift. Like, I miss him, but I really like spreading out. So, but if something happens, I'm like, oh, yeah, a tree fall in the house. Like, I'm still going to call. So you have that stress because there's no way it's not going to happen. They're still going to call you. You know, your wife's home alone with the kids or like I have an elderly grandmother. I'm like, I got to work. I need to make sure she's taken care of. They're, you're still dealing with those stressors. No one's making sure that your family's taken care of. At least in the military, they're like, hey, they can stay in military housing. We'll make sure they're taken care of. We know they have health care. As like, whenever they compare it to the military, I was like, so let's get this straight. There is a lot of preparation the military makes does to make sure that these people that are frontline have their issues at home addressed. And there are times that they take people out of active duty combat to deal with home issues. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to do that, let's remember, like, there's a whole picture involved. This is like uh, me and Chris were in Canada and they were saying, oh, we're going to mandatory recall everybody. And I'm hearing these stories about how, like, they're telling people they got to come back from country. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I guess the quote was like, somebody was like, well, we're like the military. We have to respond if they have active mandatory us. And I said, ah, no. If the military said you've been recalled to active duty, they have your flight, your plane ticket. And if they even have to bump somebody off the flight, it happens. They're not paying your $2,500 last minute plane ticket from another country. They can be feet. Like, I got to be able to get there in a reasonable. They they want you to pay more for a plane ticket than you're going to make on your paycheck. Are you insane? I said, so you have how many firemen in the department? 13, 1,400 active members? And you mean to tell me you being out of country, they can't function? Come on. You know damn well by the time you get back, it'll be over. Yeah. And I I guess the last couple of times it happens, like somebody spent a ticket 
to get $2,500 to get back emergently. And then when they got there, they're like, oh, we're good. I was like, listen, we'll get to that bridge when we get there. If you can find a $100 ticket and get back home, do what you do. But no. Otherwise, yeah, we'll ha- we'll we'll see them in a meeting. Mm-hmm. And that, and again, that that goes that goes to uh, um, staffing your fire department yeah. properly too. You know, you should you should have enough people where the day to day operations exist with basically no mandatory unless you know pending yes. hurricane whatever. Make your teams you do know? your thing. If you have the forty two hour work week, you have an extra entire shift to work with yeah. a D shift. Yeah. You know, and then and then that way, once in a while, if these mandatory things come up. Mm-hmm. People are going to be like, well, yeah, because yeah. you didn't make me work the last <laughs> you know, twice you. this week. Yeah. I'm actually refreshed. I will come in. Yes, I would. And there's actually a, usually a nice amount of people who like the money because they like as soon as the state or the state declares it as a, you know, an emergency, those federal funds loosen up. And a lot of people are like, cool, like I. Deploy here we me. go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm like, I'm at that point where I'm like, I'm good. I have no desire to sleep in the woods. Yeah, I'm good. I will be, yeah, call me when it's done. I'll come and relieve people. And I mean, even the hospital, they have their teams and they're like, hey, we're activating team A. And I was like, hey, I'm in Canada. She's like, well, we'll see you when you get back. Be safe. Avoid the storm. Because she knows, all right, I'll come back and I'll come in to relieve somebody. I'm on vacation, but I'm not going to like leave them out there to hang. But they're also not going to be like, all right, well, you need to find a $2,000 ticket back to the... It was really nice knowing you guys. (laughs) It was great while it lasted. (laughs) Like realistically, you gotta be. They gotta be realistic. So sometimes I think it gets forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it. If you if you create a, a a better work environment, like I said, as far as the work week and staffing and everything, yeah. when you need these people, you're not gonna have a problem getting them. Exactly. But as you and I know, uh, Orange County at fifty or forty two or seventy, yeah. you know, it, it was. I mean, talk about stress. Try that 7.55 a.m. stress when you're not sure if you're going to get to go home or not. Oh, man. Every and I would like the phone shift. would ring and I'd be like, have I, do I have relief? Because the phone would ring and I'd be like, if they ask, I'm gone. And like, if you loved your medic, you would not tell whoever was on the phone that they were still there at like 7.50. You'd be like, oh, they left already because you knew it was coming. Then they got smart and started like pre-calling them being like, don't leave, even if you're relieved, because you're first up for mandatory. But, you know, because you just knew. I remember one time being like, oh, God, please don't. Please don't. And she's like, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to. I'm like, don't do it. Like, <laughs> I'm literally having this meltdown in the bay. And I'm like, how is this possible? I've been mandatory three times this month. Yeah. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's and like I said, it, it's not there's no violins. It's, it's just. We want to do the best we can when we're on shift. And again, we're creating a situation. Uh, but you got to have balance. Anybody who only lives for that is never going to have a healthy work life balance. And it always bleeds into their work. Yeah. It just does. Like, they're, they're never totally right. Everyone's like, dude, you're stressed. Nobody wants to work with you. Like, you meet these high intensity people where there isn't, unless you're telling me that it's your business, your focus, your life, and like, you're, but people that, only live like there's a reason why they're like we want you to have because these make better employees yes. you have people that don't have any work-life balance you don't have problems yeah. there's a reason why they're like hey is everything okay at home before you come to work? like it's all in the mindset your support systems your structures you have to have like a good base otherwise you know you might as well just flick that thing over mm-hmm. so putting people in a position where like you know they're already in an environment and they people really they need their time there's times where i'm like this is not worth the money dude like they'll put out for like extra shifts for. I'm like, mm, I'd love to, but mm, my hamster's uncle's in town and I can't make it. <laughs> like, no, it's not worth the money because I'm at a place now. It's not a good plan. Yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah. Well, you mentioned about you know the, the sleeping in your bed alone. So another unique thing that you and Chris have is you're both fire or you were both firefighters. Yes. And now obviously you're in, in the, the hospital. Yeah. So for people you know listening, like what was that like when you first got together? What was some of the the so challenges? So it's funny because um, we are complete opposites. Yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> Chris is like. So he actually was born in the United States. I always call him Canadian because his dad is actually born in Canada. But like super laid back. I call him my Canadian. You know, he's talkative if you know him, but most people consider him to be a fairly quiet guy. And then there's me. And apparently like you can hear me coming a mile away. Like, you know, um, I tend to be very social when I'm out socially. Um, but, you know, I can be very outspoken. I try not to be rude, but I can, you know, like I mean, people... People understand what my opinion is. I have no problem sharing it respectfully. So when we actually, people didn't know we even dated. Um, very few people knew when we got in, when we actually were engaged and sent out our wedding invitations was when most of our crew was like, wait, you guys are together? You're dating? And I was like, yeah. Cause I told Chris, I said, listen, it, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to have to kill you. Cause I can't be that chick that's dating <laughs> people she works with. So let's hope this works or I'm just, you're going to have to just disappear. <laughs> so we dated, I want to say, for a good two years and we got married and it works well. Like our personalities work well. We actually are a lot more like he claims I'm more of a hermit than he is because I find that I energize. I have to have alone time to recharge. Like people are like you're very social. I'm like, I am, but I like my alone time. I need it. I like my silence. I like to be able to, and to watch my, like, I have my days where I just want to watch my trashy Real Housewives shows, days that I just want to read my books, you know, I want to do some online education, um, and it's, it affects how my relations with other people are. So when you're married, you obviously know when a, when a marriage, their stress is your stress, how you deal with each other. And when we're working at the fire department, I find that the hardest thing for people to do is to be able to turn off how you react to each other. Because even how you react to your crew is different than how you react to your spouse. Yeah. So I had to find a very delicate balance because I became a lieutenant. And being a woman in the fire service in general, um, you know, you, you kind of, you get like pigeonholed into three different like divisions when you're first hired. They're like, okay, so either she, they love, like, is she a lesbian? Because she wants to, you know, this is the male-dominated field. Um, is she just looking for uh, a man, a husband? Or is she um, just like, angry and a total you know what so i was like listen i you can put whatever one you want i'll take i'd actually i'll take the angry lesbian or just like a man hater i'll do those two that's fine as long as you leave me alone to do my job um you know i work with people well i tend to like the firemen i deal with and talk to now are like hey we enjoyed working with you i have great relationships so for me but i also had to be very good about if i had an argument or a disagreement make sure I knew what I was talking about, be willing to have the conversation. But it also, it makes you become a little bit more assertive because if you're not willing to say, no, I disagree, and to have the actual uncomfortable conversation, you do, you will get run over in this field. You will not be very good. And that's man or woman as an officer. As a woman, it's a little bit more important. And I will say it became a little bit more important that I actually knew what the hell I was talking about because as a woman, you're already having to assert yourself the last thing you want to be is a stupid assertion. So when I would deal with my husband, um, I had to learn, you don't always have to be so pointed and to the point. Fire service, we'd be on scene. If we had a disagreement, I had to be to the point. It wasn't please and thank you. It wasn't always friendly. Every now we'd have disagreement that would devolve into like a little bit more of a verbal evisceration between the two of us. Mm -hmm. But you can do that with 
other people you're working with firefighters because they're like they turned like your family like your brother like you're that crazy uncle that i really don't want to have to spend time with but you're here or you know you're like my brother that drives me crazy but i love you you know so you could have those more candid conversations because there's not that dynamic of like a personal intimate relationship when you're married to somebody though and you want to have the argument you gotta temper your reaction to what they say and do based on the fact that you're like so at some point i'm gonna want to cuddle with this person and they may not take this as well <laughs> like there's a whole personal level here that may hurt them that i really don't want to go there like i i could have a fight with a verbal confrontation with somebody and be like oh we're gonna go there and it just like totally devolve not that's healthy but if we were out all out having a drink and they wanted to have like a conversation and argument about fire service tactics it could, it could, there could be some F bombs thrown around and like up at each other's faces and that'd be totally fine. But that's not the dynamic I would use to argue at home. And so I think for a lot of couples, people deal with each other the way they deal with their crew, but it's not because it's the same reason why sometimes you find in a crew male and female partners and develop inappropriate relationships with each other because you're almost communicating in a way that normally would reserve for a spouse. Like you're sharing the most intimate secrets. You're eating with them more often than you are even your spouse, spending more time. Like this person understands me more than my spouse does. And without that like crossover, it's very easy for those lines to be like blurred. Mm -hmm. But I really had to temper how when me and Chris have a disagreement or I don't agree with something that I don't just come out and like how I would respond. It's not, I'm not talking to someone at the fire station. I'm not talking to just one of my crew, even one of the guys. Like having like, yeah, we can still disagree, but I'm going to temper this like this is a relationship. They're going to take what I say to to be a lot more like personal because there's a little bit more of an emotional investment in this and that this is dealing with like home personal relationship stuff. Now, did you notice any difference after you left the fire service and, and with the schedule and then also how you were with each other? Yes and no. Yes. And that. Um, well, Chris is very good about you know, he's very flexible. I felt like having the accident actually made me more, um, you know, people are like, they have that moment of enlightenment. I'm like, the world's going to go whether I'm here or not. So I literally was out unconscious, innovated, sedated for a good two days. Everything ran. I woke up. Cars are still driving. People are still walking around. I don't have to do everything for everybody. So I really should be willing to say no. Like, like I tell people, it's like, it's the year of the monkey, the year of no. Like, learn to say no, set my own limits, and make sure that I'm, like, giving time, as much time as I give to other people, like, that's investing in my relationship. Because I could always be available for other people to help fix other people's problems, but sometimes I may not be as connected to him because I'm like, well, you live here, and, like, yeah, it's is it really that big a deal you've been having this issue? I've learned now, too, like, if he wants to vent about the fire service, because this would be me before. Oh, cool. We're going to burn to the ground. Let's burn to the ground. Like, no, they can't. Like, not becoming so emotionally invested in what he's telling me that I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you're fine with it now. Sometimes I just want to vent. So I say that now. I go, are we venting? Or do you want my honest opinion about how to deal with this? Let me let you vent. Because then he get frustrated. He's like, I can't even tell you anything. I just want to. I'm like, oh, you're not asking for me to fix this. I'm used to people in the fire service asking me something. They want me to fix it. When you're a lieutenant, you fix things. Even when you're a medic, you're there to fix things. Sometimes they just want to vent. Have your conversation. Do your thing. But um, I think for Chris, he is adjusted as well because our relationship, he's learned to appreciate someone who likes to just... He, he has learned to appreciate the fine art of us both having time. Just because we're not in a room physically together does not mean that we're not together. 
and that I need my like my time and he needs his time. And I'm like, aren't you and the boys supposed to be out tonight? I had plans to watch this show and you're just talking <laughs> like when are you on shift you're on vacation you're driving me crazy you're around the house bugging me about things yeah and so it, it works but you learning to kind of like enjoy your alone time and not be alone i think is really important for people in relationships because i see both sides i see nurses that marry firemen and have a very hard time with the fact that you guys are gone for 24 hours yeah. and all of us that are married to firemen are like, oh, you'll get, yeah, you'll get over it. And then when he's home for vacation, he's going to drive you nuts. <laughs> They're like, I just don't know what to do when he's gone for 24 hours. I was like, you do things like get your nails done, get your hair done, go to your yoga class that you always talk about, you know, do all the things, the little things around the house. I was like, this is a good time to like start painting a wall that he had a disagreement about because it's halfway painted. So now you're going to get to finish it. I was like, you learn to adapt and you develop like you still have your own personalities outside of each other and you appreciate each other more. Because that clinginess can be just as abrasive as, you know, if you're calling him every five minutes at the station, there'd be nothing worse than a guy that every 10 minutes had to go out and answer the phone because his girlfriend was freaking out that he wasn't home or his wife. And like, he's stressed out now because he's at work. And he's like, why do you keep bothering me? And she's like, you don't want to be here. It's the worst thing. Like that can destroy as much. That, I was like, you don't realize how much of a rift that creates. Like having someone that's like, hey, just calling to check on you. You're good. They miss you. If you don't give them a chance to miss you, they won't miss you. So I think it works well. I mean, I told them a little odd, so. But <laughs> most of the people I know that have been married for any length, they say the same thing. They're like, dude, when he's home for a week, I'm like, when are you going back to shift? Yeah. You're driving me crazy. You hear a lot of that about the guys that retire. Oh, yeah. Their wives are losing their They're mind. They're like, oh, my God, you need to get a hobby. What are you? Oh, when are the boys taking you out? Yes, take him away. He's going to a retirement <laughs> party tonight. Woo. But I think that's fundamentally, and we were talking about before, you know, about retirees. Yeah. Um, that's something that I think is 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 lost a little bit. That ability to be on your own, yeah. and I had that a lot. Obviously, you know, divorce yes. and everything. Um, but you know, even with with Becky now, like she she's kind of almost like surprised. Like when she wants to go out, I'm like, go out. We you know, do because we're like thing. part of you being a well-adjusted human being is that you have a sense of self, and people that are confident with themselves, happy with themselves, comfortable with themselves tend to be very good partners in relationships. I was like, you don't want a relationship with someone that is equivalent to the relationship you have with like a child. Like, I want you to feel like you need me in your life because I contribute to your happiness, but not need you because if I'm not here, you can't function. That's a lot of fucking stress. Like, even my dog, I know, lives the life when I'm not home. I've caught him on camera, <laughs> sleeping on the couch. He's sneaking into food. Happy to see me. But he's almost happy to see me because I haven't been around all day. He's like so excited that I'm there. But and I don't want to leave him and I'm happy to see him. But I know when I'm not there, he's like living the life. You know, like there's a sense of self there. So I'm like, you know, it's there's a different you want that you want somebody in a relationship who is confident with themselves. And as like and you're not looking for them to fill like any type of insecurities or voids you have. That always creates a problem because you set an expectation of how they should act. And anytime they're out of that, you're disappointed and it creates strain. Because then someone's like, I, you want me to be someone else or you're always disappointed in me. So it's important. And I mean, it's a chance to grow or a chance like you really have cracks. Yeah. Yeah. Together. And I think that you see that even with, with yes. the profession itself. Totally. Like knowing who you are outside of the fire service, the police service, whatever you're in. Because, you know, whether it's an injury, whether it's getting fired, whether it's retiring, if you lose that identity now, I mean, I've, I've even... There are people that, you're right, there are yeah. people that do that. That's all they have. Yeah. And even for me, like coming away for that year, 
Um, and I'm going to see if it's going to take me back into the fire service. We'll see. But um, it's an adjustment. Yeah, it is. Because, I mean, I know I'm a fireman. I'm very proud of the 14 years that I, you know, yeah. did it. And, and it's funny with the promotion. I never even wanted to promote. I loved kicking yes. indoors so much. I, and I, I, do, I had to appreciate that with my husband even. I'd be like, you don't want to do this or that. And I was like, no. Why am I pushing him to do something that may not make him happy? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I adore the job. But again, when you look back and you're like, oh, this is, yeah. you know, it's like, well, it, it, am I just feeling that because I like the persona of being? And obviously, That's I want to help. Some but people this is like helping. the idea. Yeah. As uh, more, they're like in love with the idea of it as much as actually doing it. Like, there's a saying among girls: like you're in love with you're in love with the idea of marriage. You're not. You weren't in love with the person. Because I know plenty of girls that are like, I have to be married. They set a timetable for themselves and they're like, and then I'm like, that's always a setup for disaster. Yeah, that was my last marriage. Yes. Definitely. Because Definitely. if you're in love with the idea of marriage, but not the actual, but you and you've not taken any time to invest in the relationship to have a marriage, you're only going to have an idea. And when it doesn't meet that, what you see on TV, you're going to be like, this, what is this? Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I talk about this quite often now, but the, uh, the fire helmet. There's a complete aversion to go into the European one, which yeah. it's really it's cool to see. More and more departments are starting to go to it now. Yeah. I'm not on any push to change the fire right. service helmets, but it just fucking irks me because the reality is it's how you look. Yes. And I'm like, well, wait a second. You know, again, I thought it was about being the best version of yourself, being right. the most you know effective yeah. rescuer. Yeah. And there was a there was a thing on on social media the other day. A great rescue. Some uh, a fireman did off off a ladder. But the moment he he put his head in, fucking lid fell off. Yeah. With the, the normal helmet, you'd still have that on your head. So God forbid something came crashing down, you know. And and it's the same oh, thing. It's like, do you love? Do you truly love the mission of being a fireman, right. or are you more fucking concerned about your Instagram pictures? Oh, because that really, the helmet thing, that lends purely to the vanity of how you look. Totally. You know, versus doing the job. Yeah, very much, and and. There's a level of identity associated that people have with, you know, how they see something and then the reality of it. And you, like true love is like when you're in the reality dealing with that shit, because yeah. sometimes the reality is like, oh, my God, like this is horrible. <laughs> like I tell people, it's like, I know this sucks. And like being a, having being sick has helped me a lot because I tell people that I go, everyone's going to tell you you're doing good. Like stay positive. I was like, I've been there. It It blows. This is hor it's horrible. It blows. You feel like you can't do anything on your own. You're like people are irritating you because they don't realize like you don't want to ask for help. But then you ask for help. But then there are people that just like the hardest part for me about being sick. This is the God's honest truth was that um, there was a point in time where I told my husband, I said, I really love and appreciate all the firemen, but I cannot have any more visitors because there's an emotional investment. Like I love them like family. Having to console every one of them when I showed up and they'd see me with my C-collar and eye patch and they're like, oh my God. As like, I spend an hour, I'm emotionally exhausted, convincing them, no, I have not died. I'm going to be fine. They leave feeling great. And I, as the patient, I'm like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. And I tell people that now. And it's helped me with people who like when JP was sick with Rachel, like she got a lot of pushback from people when she set limits on how, how when people could see JP. And I'm like, one, we know that at some point, he is going to pass away. He's still making memories. So his family deserves as much time as his fire family. Yeah. His kids, this they still deserve to have dinner with their dad and have a normal dinner. They still deserve to be able to watch a movie with their dad and have a normal, without people coming in to remind them and him that he's passing away. And so they can regale memories in the firehouse from 20 years. Like, you have to do that. 
It's like, and you know, and I know that he wants to put up a front where he does not, he doesn't want to see his brothers in pain. And so when they're there, he spends a lot of time consoling them. Like, oh man, it's all right. You know, I know what's happening, but and it's an, it's emotionally fucking taxing. I was like, so it's hard to do tempering that you're like how you present yourself. People don't realize like you it is emotionally taxing to the other person. There's an emotional strain there and you being cognizant of that, I think is actually probably one of the biggest lessons I learned being sick. So I was like, holy shit, it's work being sick. And I've told people, I said, dying is easy. Living is a fucking bitch. <laughs> I was like, yo, dying is easy. Like, People are like, do you remember anything? I was like, I remember having the best nap of my fucking life. And then I woke up innovated in four point restraints. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit, what happened? I was like, but for me, it was like a nap and a half. It was great. I was like, the recovery was the bitch. Having to like get up, do physical therapy and being exhausted after doing physical therapy, taking meds, making myself do these shots, following up on doctor appointments. I was like, that was work. I was like, this blows not being able to like have any balance, not being able to like even cook because I couldn't have the strength to stand. I was like, living is like surviving is a bitch. Dying easy. I can see now why people just choose the lake. It was very comforting. It's not my style, but hey, I was like, living is fucking hard as hell. Surviving with, and I was like, and I didn't even have a long-term illness. This was like a wham, bam hit me. And it was like recovery may have been six to eight months. I was like, there are people that live with illnesses years as like and it's a strain on the caretaker because there is no break when they're sick and they're sleeping you're awake trying to do everything else in normal life and then when they wake up you're trying to make sure they're positive they're emotionally cared for they're tired they're cranky you're trying to meet their needs it's like i feel for these wives when they you know their their spouses are sick and then uh, this is why i say the firemen don't give them shit because they don't need your shit on top of the shit they're dealing with like, imagine being told, if someone told you, I need you to run two miles, it may be a bitch to do it, but you know you're going two miles and it's done. Someone said, I just need you to run. I'm not going to tell you when it's going to be done. Just keep going. That, like, the just the mental of that, a mile in, you're like, I'm done with this. Like, I don't even know what's the point. That's what it's like having someone who is, like, full care, sick with a chronic illness. I don't know when this is going to end. Like, you just told me to run, like, and I'm putting everything into it and I have no idea when I'm going to get there, where... It's like, that's it's fucking exhausting. So, I mean, for me, that was a good perspective and it makes me appreciate my spouse even more. And Chris is a saint for putting up with me. That's what I tell people. Technically, I'm the saint for putting up with him. But <laughs> it works well. It's a two-way street. It is, you know? You take the good and the bad. We have our things. And then, you know, communicating about it. But I tell people all the time, I was like, they all think that I'm like the, like, that I'm the crazy one. Listen, you guys have never seen Chris mad. That little quiet Canadian scares me. <laughs> he's okay. got a hell of a slap he shot does. too <laughs> he's like and he harumphs like he's like hmm it's like a sound it's not even like he's like hmm it's a harumph him and his dad do it I was like oh he's harumphing <laughs> like, that's how I know I'm in trouble <laughs> we're going to, to to the fire department for one, one more thing and I want to get to some rapid questions um, but you, you when we were talking before we started recording you talked about flow and yeah. I thought I really liked your kind of whole perspective on that in nursing and in firefighting. So elaborate on that concept for so, me. So if you're not familiar with the idea of flow, um, there's quite a few, there's some really good books out there on flow. It's, you know, something that a lot of people talk about with like neurogenics, neural hacking. And, you know, it's, I describe it as this, you know, when surfers talk about like that high they get when they surf, like where they're just, the world is still, no other stimuli. You're focused on what you're doing. You're good at what you're doing. People that are long distance runners, 
they sprint. They're like, I'm in the flow when I do my marathon. Like, it's just me, the road. They release those endorphins. You know, people that are high adrenaline junkies, this is why they're addicted to it and why they get so good at it. Firefighting and like people that work fire, EMS, even the medical field, there is a flow. And they're addicted to the flow. They just don't realize it. It's like because there is something very much reminiscent of the flow to me. And I fought fires and I, and I do practice my own form of like, um, meditation, like calming, breathing, focusing, emptying my mind. And it helps with my stress. When you fight a fire, you go into a building. It's you. It's the host, your partner, maybe the other crew. But for that bit of time, it's just you and this task. And then you actually see the flames. It's always pretty. Every fireman's like that. Like, I swear, like, they see it and they're like, you can hear the music from backdraft. Like, oh, they're just doing their thing. And they're like, it's this moment. And I'm like, and you'll watch firemen do nitty gritty, horrible task on scene for four hours. It's the happiest they've ever been. They're loading hose. They're trekking through dirty water. If it's freezing cold water, if it's super hot outside, you know, they've gone through multiple air packs, sweated through all their gear. The happiest you'll ever see them is at a fire scene, after fire, eight hours. And like, you know, you're now having to put back 3,000 feet of like five inch hose. Happy as can be. And it's because they've experienced that flow. That is like, they've gone to their happy place. Yeah. For that bit of time, like they were where they wanted to be doing what they knew they were good at, learning something at the same time because the rate of learning when you're in flow is like exponential. Uh, because everything is heightened, but it's slowed. And there's no, I've noticed, because, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's been times where I had the kind of like pucker factor yes, on you're fires. Like, Woo! But <laughs> yeah. most of the times you're in flow, you look back and you're like, I wasn't even yeah. scared. There was no and fear was like the at best all. experience. When people complain about things, you hear people complain about a fire scene. They're like, that was a cluster. Flow is continually interrupted. Someone's on the radio consistently talking. There's micromanaging. No one knows what anyone's doing. No one's doing the tasks they were assigned. So you're like, you're having to focus on what everyone else is doing. And you, you're not able to really get into that place where you're doing what you do really well. You're actually enjoying it. You're learning from it. That's so I'm like, I feel like a lot of firemen don't realize as like firefighting in general is a very spiritual experience. They don't realize it. It's like, and it doesn't have to be hokey pokey. I'm not asking you to like light some sage. And, and, you know, chance, there's a whole spiritual experience that takes place that does not have anything to do with being religious. It's just that calm, total space that you find where everything, nothing, you're not worried. Everything is good. There's enough stress for you to perform at your best because you're like, I got to get something done. I have a goal. Like I'm running this race. My goal is to finish or to finish in a certain time or to catch this wave and like get a good score. Or, or like just be out here. Same with firefighting. My goal is like my flow is I see this, see my task. I'm doing a good job. I see progress. I'm learning. I'm adjusting the nozzle. I'm adjusting my tactics. I'm asking for ventilation. And I'm in a good like I'm in a good place. It's my flow. And then you have that release of endorphins and they're great. Firemen are the most trouble when there's nothing going on. They're not in flow. Things are happening at the station that are probably illegal. And someone's <laughs> going to have to write an incident report before it's all over. <laughs> well, I, I talk about this a lot, too, is, you know, a lot of times you get banged out. Yes. And either it's, you know, canceled or a freaking AFA or some yes. bullshit like that. But or it's the non-emergent, yes. you shouldn't even be going to hospital in the first place type yes. of call. And so there isn't that. Existing. There's the buildup for it, but you never get in no. that state. Well, there's even a code. I mean, you get, yes. I, I think, the flow state and a code. Oh, totally. And the there's nothing it. like, and this sounds horrible. There's nothing like a code that works like textbook. Yeah. Where everybody on scene is functioning like they're supposed to. And it's amazing how little communication there is. 
which is we teach that in ACLS, there should be a team leader and a good code. There will be one person directing things and people will be doing like communicating what's been done and not been done or what's needed, but it's not mass pandemonium. Everyone is in their flow state. Like they're in where I'm supposed to be, what I'm doing. I'm focused on this, but not in such a way where it's like an uncomfortable focus, but it's enough of a challenge for me that I'm outside my true comfort zone of sleeping, but it's not so uncomfortable to me. It's such a challenge to me that I'm not comfortable doing it. Like I'm enjoying this learning process. I'm yeah. in a good place. And I think that's that the, the, the base of that is obviously good training. Yes. You can only ever get to flow if you've done the preparation. And it's always interesting, the busier houses, if you notice the guys who run all these calls where they have the ability to experience what I, this flow state that I describe tend to want this. They're the ones that are like, I need a fire. Mm -hmm. I'm oh, like, absolutely. and people are like, oh, they're just adrenaline junkies. I was like, actually, they're flow junkies, mm -hmm. which is actually completely opposite. It's a complete state of calm. Oh, they're firefighters as well. That's what it up. is. They're crazy. So <laughs> yeah, it's like that's exactly what it is. It's like, and we all want that. Everybody wants that. They want to experience that in anything. Like you, you develop it. I was like, and it's needed. Your mind needs that. Otherwise, you do. You get anxious people that hit flow state. They are more inclined to learn. So. These guys run all these fires. They do all these calls. These are the ones that you see doing these extrication classes and doing all these like firefighter mayday classes and RIT classes and firefighter rescue and advanced tactics because they've experienced that flow and they're like anything to help them be better at that. They're in like a right position for it. They are enjoying that's their love is like they've actually reached it and they like being there. Yeah. And, and that's the difference. There's nothing better than going to you know, some sort of what yes. might be perceived as a complex situation and, and like, having the tools in the toolbox yes. and mitigating it. And at the end of it going, yeah, we, yeah, we, well, not just me. Yeah. Like we, yeah, as a we team just came too. together yeah. and fixed that. And, and we're calm and everybody's happy. Everyone's safe. We all live. Like it's good. Yeah. And that's the thing about flow too, is you actually need a little bit of a challenge to be in it. Otherwise you, like you can be in like your meditative, like nice calm state where you're just calm and present. But flow is nice because there's enough of a stress there that you have to respond to it. But it's almost like the decisions people like describe it as like, man, I just knew what to do. Yeah. Didn't know why. And I'm like, actually, you're really thinking you're just accelerated. You're in like that perfect space to do what you need to do. You're remembering the training, the skills. You're in a good place. And you're like, this is where it all comes together. This is what they write all the manuals about. Because mm -hmm. when you do it and you're in that place, it actually works really well. But mindset is a big part of it. And I'm, it just people don't recognize that. I'm like, you crave it because you've reached it. People that have never been there are like, why would they want to do that? I was like, well, they if you've seen how they are, I'm like, that's the happiest you'll see them is working the hardest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, there's no better feeling than standing yeah. on the back of the tailboard, handing five inch back up. It's six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, exchanging yeah. stories. You're going to get off late, but you're fine with it. You got stories to tell and they're super happy. They come back smiles, happy to clock out late. Yeah. Because you know those B-shift wankers are going to be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> we already, it already, we saved it. So if it burns down, it's on you. Yeah. That's exactly what they do. Unless you don't overhaul probably. Then. <laughs> Like now, you gotta go, now you got to do the fire watch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, one more thing before we get to the wrapper questions. You are holding a can of Fit Aid. Yes. So before we, sorry, Focus Aid. Um, so before we start talking about that, um, in first responder community, it's probably almost like post when you were there now. It's really getting mm -hmm. crazy. I've heard so many, you know, guys and girls now getting palpitations, all kinds of stuff, mm -hmm. go to the ER. Um, from some of these hyper-caffeinated, hyper-sugar yeah. drinks. So do you see that in your yeah. ladies of men too? Totally. And um, 
it's a big issue for us too, obviously, because I work post-cardiac surgery. And we're like very much like, you need to really watch your stimulants. Because besides the palpitations, the uncomfortable, people are like, oh, it gives them a fast heart rate. There's a whole process that takes place where you have like vasoconstriction so, um, or vasodilation. So like your blood vessels either get bigger or smaller. And it can it affects your perception, your irritability. I mean, you living in a hypervigilant state because you're hyped up on caffeine is not good because your body's going to respond to that by saying, why are we like this? There's a threat. Because you should not have those chemicals running in those levels unless you are in fight or flight mode. And when you put yourself in that mode erroneously and you live at that level, your body still secretes all those stress hormones that you normally do. And it causes a lot of like end organ damage. You know, and can create real issues. I was like, there's a reason why when you are stressed out, fight or flight, you know, like you'll work a whole fire and be like, man, I haven't had to pee the whole time. I've been here six hours. Mm-hmm. Add a little dehydration, but your body's in that mode where like the adrenaline's pumping. And the first thing it does is it like shunts that urine production. And like you live like this, drinking caffeine, high caffeinated, high additive fructose drinks all day. And, you know, you put yourself in that state for really prolonged periods of time. Then you find sleep disruptions for these people. And then, of course, if they try to stop, they have the cravings. So it's like you need more to do it. I mean, I just um, read a thing about people who drink way too much coffee or caffeine, more than three to four cups a day, and how it actually affects the amount of adenosine in the body, which it's crazy because we use adenosine or adenocard for people that are um, having basically tachycardias. Mm We push it, slows it down. It almost looks like the heart stops for a minute, but it slows it down. Well, caffeine like eats adenosine, like they bind. So people that actually are, you know, overhyped on caffeine actually end up with like an adenosine deficiency a little bit. And that's why they get palpitations. Their heart's no longer able to control that rate with the natural adenosine that you basically produce. Well, the body reads like, okay, I got to produce more adenosine. I don't have enough. This is why I'm tacky. And so then they find that when they're not drinking coffee, they're way sleepier and they have so many more problems, which we describe as withdrawal. So then they take more coffee. So it's like an additive effect. These are the people that are doing like a quad shot of espresso and like their double mocha latte. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, you know, to... to And it's all hormones. Hormones and chemicals. It's all Mm -hmm. we are, people. Glands. It's all we are. We are. (laughs) But again, you know, so so that whole health thing we're talking about. Let's kind of talk about, you know, the coffee and, and yes. energy drinks. Well, that's another thing that people are being fed because I mean they are. It's an uphill battle trying to eat well, trying to you know understand Hi. exercise. But yeah, I'm just there's that new thing now where Starbucks is advertising their double caffeinated coffee drinks. You know, so then obviously yeah. there's all the models going. Oh, I'm getting so much more oh done now. And Bullshit. I'm gonna claim I guilty. I will own it. So I actually order this stuff called Death Coffee from Amazon. Love it. I do half a cup a day. I can't do more. That gives me, and I'm like, it gives me my perk, but I'm done. Mm-hmm. And it's the beginning of the day. If I if I drink that within six hours of my shift ending, I'm not sleeping. Yeah, and that's the Which problem that we see. Which is insane. Yeah, because for us, we want, you know, you get up at that that call. Let's say you have a monster. Well, you, your sleep's done the rest yep. of the day. Or you never get into REM. Like some people are like, oh, I can sleep even after I drink coffee. I was like, you just never reach REM. Yeah. Same so you wake up and mess. you're like, why am I tired? You're not technically sleeping. I was like, REM is really important. People literally go into psychosis without sleep. Like it's it. And people that don't get enough sleep are associated with having depressive disorders, anxiety, bipolar. Your body never rests. Your brain needs to rest. I was like, and I'm going to tell you now, I was like, your brain's going to do what it has to do. And it's going to shut down whether you sleep or not. 
Yeah. They might be behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why you're always so foggy and why you're so irritable when people bother you. Like, you're like, I don't want, I'm not motivated to do anything. Your brain's like, you're not letting me rest when I need to. So I'm going to take a cat nap here. And that's you zoning out while you're doing something else and being irritable when people bother you. Like, it's going to do what it has to do. Yeah. It's pretty selfish. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you think? So you, you tried the focus aid. I actually, so I like it one. It is not super sweet and I love that. It does not taste like an energy drink. So I can't do the energy drinks because I was like, I know where this is. It's high on the sugar. It does not taste um, minerally vitamin. Yes. It's like nice and like it got a little fizz. Yeah. It's actually pretty good. Like I could see drinking this like recreationally. Yeah. I like it. Because that's the, the products that I promote on the show are literally ones as you've seen i got them in my yeah. fridge which i paid for i don't get them given to me for free either i know but, and i but. like because um it's funny because i was telling you i was like they have actually quite a nice amount of amino acids in here but it's funny um a lot of the stuff that they have in here we give to patients that we feel like either need to have a nutritional supplement we give it iv um or we actually add it to like their medication mar while they're in the hospital so recovery meds because there's a lot of stress that the body goes under when you have surgery. So we add a lot of actual supplementation mm-hmm. while you're there to just get you started. And I'm like, this has a nice amount here. This is pretty good. Yeah. Vitamins. I like it. A lot of the B vitamins, which I love. Biotin. It's pretty good. Yeah. And then the nootropics. And the tropics are real yeah. nice. Yeah. Keep you alert. Nothing so. that's going to make you no. like the tweaker. And if you have that, you know, on the way to that, that, you know, 1 a.m. call, when you come back, you're going to be able to sleep. Oh, yeah. I've had some people tell me their sleep's got better since they've been Oh, totally. Because, you know, the nice thing about them is all they're doing is helping with your alertness. They're just not a stimulant. So you can still lay down and sleep and you're not overstimulated. Yeah. Which is the big thing is like being able to come down when you come down. You want your body to respond when it needs to, but you don't want it to be in a state of like artificial hypervigilance. That does not work for anybody. I was like, what what is like the trademark for us that we see um, when we look at psych patients and we do a psyche valve? And I'm like, just basically, just part of the behavior screen for triage. You're not even there giving me a complaint yet. Is I'm marking, what do you look like? Are you anxious, depressed, apathetic? You seem helpless, hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. People that are always like this, there's something. Why are you always worried that there's a threat? What's happening that makes you feel like that? Yeah. And you do, you get really paranoid. I find people that are really hyped up on their meds, like even some of the ADH meds, like the stimulants they become very emotional. Then they've actually, like, they discuss that. Like, you become very emotional. Your responses become very emotional because you're in that hypervigilant state. And so every reaction is almost like an overreaction. And you're like, did you take your meds today? And people are like, yeah. And you're like, you're still driving me crazy. <laughs> because they can't help that emotional ability that comes with it with taking, like, their Adderall or their, um, what's the other one? Yeah. Like, it causes an emotional reaction. And they tend to be very emotionally driven with it gives them some sort of motivation because that's usually the biggest problem with ADHD, but it creates that emotional reactive state as well. And the, the hypervigilance of like always looking for a threat when there isn't one or overreacting to a situation is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, the vigilance is definitely, it's kind of, cause you've got the hypervigilance of our community and then you've got the undervigilance of a lot of people with their yeah. smartphones and everything, oh, totally. but the middle ground. Yeah. I mean, you need to be aware. I mean, I, I, Started carrying, um, you know, owned a gun for mm-hmm. about, when was it? It was my retirement present, so a year ago. Yep. Um, but that was because mm-hmm. if I'm ever picking my son up and I see some shit bag carrying yeah, a bag you're of like, guns, mm-hmm. you know. That's- and you know enough to be suspicious and to be like questioning things that don't look normal. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of people who do have de- attention deficit disorders, their biggest problem is they cannot focus outside of the big 
out of like the, what they're looking at. So the medication in general actually helps you so that you can actually focus on your task. Because like for me, I will find I'll be doing something and then I'll be like, oh, let me wash this dish. Wait, hold on. I'm going to wipe this spot. Let me go ahead and vacuum and sweep on the head. And so there are a lot of people that do that. I've learned to manage this because when I was younger, ADHD was not like a diagnosis. And so for me, I mean, I've grown up my whole life and there are things that I am, like I know how to focus and like not drive people crazy. But even when people are on their meds, it allows them to focus on the task. But what you actually find is they're able to focus on the task and it prevents them from becoming easily distracted by distractors. So it doesn't actually make them better at being more aware of their surroundings. They tend to just focus on what they're doing and almost become obsessive compulsive. Because there are some people when they're on their meds, like they're in there counting every alcohol wipe in the truck because now they have, they're like hyper-focused on this job and it's prevented them from having the like disattention where they're not focused on anything. And I'm like, so I've traded one for the other. I'll take one because we're functioning. But technically, I mean, it's not making them any more aware of what's going on because they're like so into this. They almost become like unable to see the big picture. And yeah, then they get a job in EMS infantry and drive you crazy with their damn totally. marks. Totally. <laughs> oh, my God. Totally. All right. Well, I want to switch to some closing questions. It's been sure. an amazing conversation, but it's been uh, like two and a half hours. Wow. <laughs> Um, we have phone conversations in their 45 minutes I'm like I gotta go back from break I think they're looking for me (laughs) (laughs) so the first one is is there a book that you love to recommend to people could be about what we discussed today or something completely different oh good lord All right. so I actually just finished one called Atomic Habits um, which I love and I'm like I discovered audible books recently and I'm in fucking love with them um, there's another one called The Power of Quiet, and it actually talks about the power of the introvert, because I'm always considered to be an extrovert, and I actually did some studying and looking on this, and I'm what's considered an intra-extrovert, but it was talking about the benefits of people who actually, you know, it's true that the, the ability to sit and allow someone to talk, and you kind of like, so how are you? And you just let them speak. Mm-hmm. Very therapeutic for a lot of people. That one's very good. And I've got to remember the name of the author for the book. He wrote a book. It's called Flow very good yeah yeah it's funny with the the listening because if someone asked me about any of this stuff yeah. i have to pull the reins in because obviously i'm super passionate about all this totally thing. and like it's but, interesting and you talk you talk to someone who's like interested and you do yeah. you just chat but, but with the guests it's the opposite it's like i have to you know ask the question and then, then learn to be quiet yeah, and I, I mean, it's it's, i'm getting better now but at first it was like you know I don't think I was stepping over people that much, but I listened to other people's podcasts. Yes. And the ones I love were, you know, in they the, let the conversation. Guest. Yeah, but they'd shut up. Yeah. And it's that, you know, guest might talk for 30 minutes. Great. Yeah. Just listen. Well, you've become literally a therapist because that's what a therapist does. And how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and what do we do when we have those feelings? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very and, uh, open-ended and just kind of let you ramble your way through. <laughs> the very opposite of a lawyer who's like, no, 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 stick to the question. Yes. Forget, <laughs> we'll get back to the question event. That's why I got my little cheat sheet. At That's some right. point, we'll get yep. back to number six. Um, all right, so same question, movie or documentary or both? Ooh, oh my God, there's so many good documentaries out. So actually, I just binge watched um, a docu... It's a series documentary on Netflix called um, The Family. Okay. So this guy had written like two or three books about... You know, everyone's always like the Illuminati are real, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And like, what is it? The other society. Was this the one with... The Masons. The society. White House and Religion. I started watching that. That's right. Yeah. So this guy wrote about, and he calls it the family because, and he actually, I mean, it's 
all like factual. He has the pictures and the talks about these actual places that exist. And he interviews people who went there, like Republican, Democrat. And I mean, it's pretty cool because I feel like people having faith is very important. Like it is. People draw so much strength from it. I don't care what you decide your faith is. You should have something like, you know, it's Allah, you know, Jesus, Yahweh, the wicked mother goddess. Everybody should have something because pretty much anything else that you put all your time, energy, and love into, like money, will eat you alive. It's true. So I think that that is a great thing. Yeah. But I also feel like t- allowing people to use religion, it has been used for years to basically emotionally enslave enslaves people's rights and you know basically infringe on the rights of others Mm -hmm. other classes of people by using that as saying well this is i'm chosen by god i can make these decisions or taking whatever text they have and saying i interpret it to mean this and that's what it means and so what he did was you know people always talk about washington as being a cesspool and i'm like but they have mastered the fine art of using religion to divide people instead of bring them together Mm -hmm. again it's that kindness and compassion if it's not there it destroys any religion and what I found, this was the most interesting part because there's been some conversation was that he talked about how this organization of people in the family, they actually interpret the Bible completely different. They have no shame. In their minds, they like the parable of the wolves and the sheep and like how most pastors are like, we're the sheep, the Lord is shepherding us, he's saving us from the wolves. Mm-hmm. Their interpretation is, no, we want the wolf. The wolf is one of God's creatures too, but you want to be the wolf. Because God's given all the power to the wolf. And so their org- their goal in the family and that organization is find men, leaders of men, who will be the wolves to basically influence policy procedure in other countries, in the United States, all under the guise of their Christian organization. And that regardless of whether they live a life that's not consistent with the scriptures, like infidelity and morality, whatever, you're one of God's chosen. So you can do whatever you want to do. And like they even quote, like one of them was saying, you know, remember David and Bathsheba? Like David was one of God's favorite and he was a king and he fell in love with Bathsheba. She was married. So he had that guy killed by sending him to the front lines. But he was, but he was still one of God's chosen. You can still be, you know, he, if you're God's chosen, you can do whatever you want. And I was like, dude, they got deep into stuff that I was like, I would never even think that. And they make no qualms about saying that to their membership. That's what they do. And their best tool has been that they've remained secret the guy who ran it for like 50 years he was like there will be no hierarchy it's not an organization or a club don't call it that don't call it a membership anyone who's associated with it is called a friend like he did they said he was the most powerful unknown per- the most powerful person you've never heard of and it was like it showed him in pictures with all the presidents the national prayer breakfast that they have every year for every presidency is actually done through them mm-hmm. and everyone's like who funds this and everyone's like isn't it congress it's actually not done by congress it's like, I mean, I mean, I was like, yo, I'm deep into it. I've fallen into the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and I'm in love. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's what's beautiful about the, the internet. You know, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, that's that specific person, that specific yes. religion. And again, that goes back to if Jesus was there, what would he think about this right yes. now? I'm guessing probably not very favorably yes. like he did in the market that time. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but yeah, we can educate ourselves and then we can, you know, we can, we can explore different areas and then take the truth from it. Of course, there's always going to be a lean to yeah. most of these things. But the, you know, we're getting a peek behind the curtain of so many areas now. And I think that a lot of people are realizing that we really have been duped in many areas, not just yeah. religion and in, in obviously yeah. like healthcare and, 
in in you know just so many things like prisons perfect yeah, example oh god you know how many how many corporations they get rich by <sighs> our prisoners yes. creating their products you do like if you're you it's very hard to make a human service department be profit driven because you're always going to deal with being profit driven in itself is like you know what that means it's all based on the bottom line what i'm making from this mm-hmm. that's what a profit is what do i take away what do i get and then saying we're going to offer some sort of public service or like service to everybody or try to help out the poor with a profit. It doesn't work. No, it's like a misnomer. A like how do you, it's an oxymoron people. Mm-hmm. Like, so it, the, the documentaries these days though are like on point, yeah. on point. And then one last suggestion, if you can actually get it on YouTube, David Wallace was this author, um, a college professor actually who committed suicide after depression, but he did this speech and it was called, um, this is water. On YouTube. I'm telling you the best college commencement speech I've ever heard in my life. Brilliant. I will called This is Water. It's very good. It's very good. And you know, it's I mean, it's he eventually killed himself. He'd been battling depression for a long time, but listening to him talk about the speech and like his life lessons because he's talking about things you will learn, things that you have learned, is just really you know what I mean? Like it's cool. It's based on the premise he said that uh, there's like an old Japanese tale of two fish in the water and like an old fish swims by a young fish and says, hey, how's the water today? And the young fish is like, it's cool. And he looks at his friend and he goes, what the heck's water? He's like, that's life. Mm-hmm. You're in it and you don't even realize it. Yes. It's like somebody saying to you, how's your life going? Pretty good. What the hell's he talking about? Like you're living it. So it's pretty good. I think they, I think that's like one of the best things I've actually like, man, I really like that. I come back, I like re-listen to that or reread it at least once a year. It's pretty cool. Okay. Well, I will put that on the show notes too. I'm definitely going to watch yeah. that myself. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, all right. Next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and mm. associated professions? Oh, man. Could be I anyone. I do some legwork on this. I mean, because I have a couple of people that I definitely am thinking. Because you've done a pretty fucking good job. <laughs> <laughs> That would have to be something I get back to. I'm trying to think of who I would just like off the bat. I mean, because a lot of people really have some really cool like insights. And the nice thing about this is I've run into a bunch of people that are nurses that were firefighters, EMTs before, especially in EMS. Like it seems like we all know each other like, oh, yeah. And they're like, this is I did this before I did this. They're very good at what they do. So I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. Yeah, please do. Yeah, because that's pretty cool. And that's good. All right, so the last one before we talk about how people can reach out to you, what do you do to decompress when you are not working? So, like I said, I actually, I yeah, I'm like 50% there to hermitage. I just need to pick out my cave that I'm going to live in. But um, I do enjoy my alone time. I'm an avid reader. And, like, when I was younger, I would read just for, like, you know, like, I love zombie books because I'm pretty sure that it's going to happen working in the medical field. I was like, everybody's got something. I've been promised a plague for years. I'm still waiting. Um, but I do. I really enjoy reading. And uh, like audible books lately are like the place for me. And I am really, I think people, the one thing I will say, kids these days, back in my day, you had to really look for stuff on the internet. Now with YouTube, like all the stuff, like I subscribe to like Big Think, um, TED. I mean, the amount of conversations and talks that people that you can do, I really enjoy that. But other than that, you know, I like hanging out with people who like enjoy life. And, you know, I'm lucky I got an 89 year old grandmother who thinks she's 25. 
and wants to go hang out with my friends and who my friends love and apparently have conversations with her without me. I just found this out. She's like, oh, I talked to whoever. I'm like, they call you when we're not together. Like, you know, um, but seeing how people just, you know, they deal with their hardships and they move on. And I always was kind of like, I don't want to be that person that people look at and are like, oh, man, something happened. And like, it's become who she is. You know, I'm I'm totally fine when people are like, you know, she got ran over. And they're like, what? Because to me, I'm like, I'm more than just that. I'm like, it sh- I don't feel like it should be a surprise to people that I was like, all right, well, I woke up and could like feed myself and wipe my own rear end. And I moved on. Um, because I feel like that everybody has things in their lives that they overcome. Everybody has like a backstory. And so being able to kind of like live past that, live through that, and then people get to know you and it's like a pleasant surprise. I actually do enjoy that. I enjoy dealing with people who are new to like their field and they're still really passionate and being like, I totally think that's cool. Cause I think that there's a shortage of people in the world who encourage people to like pursue their passion. A lot of people seem to like be Debbie Downers like, Oh, I don't know if I... I wouldn't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And I'm like, dude, do it. If it's what gets you, do it. Like, what's in it? So you try to, you don't like it. Okay. I've never heard anyone, I've never heard anyone regret doing something. I've heard a lot of people regret not doing something. A bucket list of things you haven't done. It's not a list of things you have done. I said, so as long as it doesn't involve like, you know, joining the cult, drinking the Kool-Aid, I'm for it, man. You know, if, you, if this is something you really want to do, try it. If all this was, you're like, I tried it. It was an experience and I didn't like it. You still learn something. You learn what you don't like. So I'm, and I'm always trying something. I have like a list of things, you know, I'll do, um, and I have a lot of friends, like we'll go do paint night. I like to do pottery stuff. I've taken up the harmonica and I will admit this. The only really? reason I love the harmonica as much as I do is because it drives everyone around me crazy. You need to get that eye patch back and play oh, the dude, harmonica totally. on your porch with I'm, the eye patch. <laughs> I'm getting a banjo <laughs> and like a slide whistle. So I started using it um, because it helped because, I mean, I didn't realize you used so many muscles to whistle until I tried to whistle after my like accident and was like, had to get back strength. So I was doing the harmonica and like people were like, oh my God. And I remember I was in peds one night it's like empty and I start playing it and I hear people like, what the, and they're like, oh my God, who gave her a harmonica (laughs) and love it. It's great. Or like they'll hear it and they're like, no, it's more like the pleasure of them knowing it's coming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my husband's like, are you serious? He bought a ukulele though. Chris did? So he gets this ukulele and I come in and you know, it's like this little thing and he's like sitting in this little chair and I'm like, you look like a special ed kid. And he's like, I refuse to pass insults with somebody who plays a harmonica. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why our marriage survives. (laughs) That's what we do. That's how we keep the romance alive. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got something, you know, amazing going on and you're both great people. So. Oh, thank you. It's awesome to see. It's hard to believe we've known each other as long as we have. I know. And I, I was trying to work out if you guys were actually married when I first went to 70 or if it just happened. Because uh, I, was, I was at 73. Oh, no, yeah. We were not married because we um, we transferred because we were both at 42. And we transferred before we started dating because he was an engineer. And we were like, hey, we don't want it to become like an issue. So we were dating. We weren't married yet. We probably married shortly after you came to 70. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, well, probably like within that year. But we, yeah, we was. I had actually transferred out before him. So, yeah. Right. Very cool. I know. All right. We're well, an the last old question. married couple. Yes. I know. Mm-hmm. You get some more dogs, though. I know. I'm still in mourning. I even got, like, this really cool, like, black hat with a veil, and I walk around the house at times, <laughs> and, like, you know. Oh! 
<laughs> to yes. play your harmonica through the Oh, totally. Oh, I've played them a whole song and everything. Chris is like, I can't even do it. <laughs> it's so great. But I do. I miss my little Bella and Higgins. But, you know, but I, you know, when I tell people with a pet, I was like, it teaches you more about yourself than you think because it's unconditional love. And then as much as it hurts to lose them, you're like, man, you know, you're capable of like loving something like basic because if you think about it, your dogs don't do anything physically for you unless you have like a, a disability dog. But the emotional is like, in my mind, they did everything. Yeah. I was like, you know, it's not like they cook you meals, they don't massage your feet, them just coming over and wanting to be petted, and you're doing something for them, but it gives you such gratification. You're petting them, you're in their world. You're giving them treats, you know, rubbing their belly, doing whatever they want, but you're like totally happy with it. Yeah. That is the power of unconditional love. So. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what we were talking about before is, you know, we had them in the stations years yeah. ago, and then... Uh, totally. I'm sure the whole lawsuit thing is what got them out. So we I actually had a cop that. on scene when I was at the fire department tell me once we went on a call and this guy was like really belligerent and being a complete butthead, but he had a dog. And I remember thinking, man, these cops are about to, they're about to lock this guy up. And I looked over and the cop was just like, he was relaxing against his car. I was like, you're handling this very well tonight. Like you're not even disturbed. He goes, you know what? He goes, I've met a lot of bad people. He's like, you meet a person who... If somebody, when they're drunk, hits women or children or animals, that's a bad person. Mm-hmm. You talk and smack to other men and you're drunk, but you're taking care of your dog, that's not a bad person. Hmm. I was like, dude, that's deep. It's like cop Taoism 101. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that is totally cool. He's like, he's not a bad dude. Is he annoying me as a drunk? Yes. But you know what? Like, yeah, he's like, no, I've met bad people. Dudes who get drunk, he's like, because. Think about it. It's like, it's true. I can never, no matter how drunk I am, I'm never going to abuse my pet. I'm never going to abuse some kid. You know, guys like, guys get drunk. She may be mouthy, but he's like, you need to go sleep this off. Doesn't hit his wife. But, you know, he's like, no, that's you. He's like, drinking makes you annoying, but it also shows who you really are. He's like, a, he's not a bad dude. He's, he's like, look at how he is with that dog. He's talking all this crap to us, and he's still worried about what's going to happen to his puppy. Yeah. He starts pouring bleach on a six-year-old yeah. kid. He's like, he's not a bad guy. Asshole. He's me have some bad things in life. He's like, but I've seen bad dudes. It's not a bad dude. And I was like, I, yeah, I appreciate this. Like, this the cop Zen way. Like, it's awesome. So, and I mean, it stuck with me. I was like, that's a pretty good quote. Yep. Absolutely. What a great way to finish this. Yeah. All right. So, the very last thing, if you want to reach out to you, how do I am do on <laughs> I am on Facebook. Um, Stephanie Crossland is what it's under. C-R-O-S-S-L-A-N-D. And, um, you know, I, ans- I, I check it. I do. It may be a day or two. I'm really not like a person that like has my phone out. Cause I grew up in a time period where if you really wanted to get in contact with someone, you had to find a phone to do it. Mm-hmm. Me like too. the fact that I've had to describe what a payphone is to people makes me feel elderly as fuck, but whatever. Yes. <laughs> I remember even when I think the answer phone was kind of a new thing when I was really yeah. young. So. And like everybody having a cell phone like you know so but i do check that and that's probably like the easiest way that's the easiest um my email is stephanie carter 1255 at yahoo.com but i'm pretty sure most people listening to your podcast know that if they really wanted to ask something about me they just call you yep See, she seems a little unstable but i just need a clarification Can yes you- <laughs> <laughs> well i just want to say thank you it's been such an awesome conversation sometimes you know i sit down with these people and they you know, firstly, I don't yeah. know them personally, like we know yeah. each other, but then, you know, they're, they're an expert in this area. So I have these, these kind of structured questions. Right. But then, you know, when we were going to do it, I just wanted to see where it went. And we I hit will some see really this cool about places. our conversations. They're always long and we can have a conversation that starts about like, 
oat bran and ends with how aliens are <laughs> on the planet. Like, and I love those type of conversations because we're not even microdosing. There are no pop brownies here. No. And it's just where just the conversation goes. It's the flow of the conversation, man. So, um, but I've always enjoyed it. I mean, even when you call me at work, it's like, yeah, we chat for long periods of time, but that's cool. Absolutely. Because most people, I'm like, okay, what do you need? Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank so you thanks so for much. having me. And I'm like, I've been putting this off forever. So you are like a man of patience because I've had so much stuff come up in the like past. I think we've been talking about this for like a year. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny because when, when things happen, either you know, I reach out to a guest and they just can't. You know, yeah. it's not if it's when, you know, like, yeah, like I, said, I appreciate it. There's no rush. So we, we like, got it done. You know, the firefighter monk, man, patience. <laughs> you're like, good. You're like, I wait them out. <laughs> Indeed. And you're doing an awesome thing here. I send you good vibes. Wish you all the best. You're doing wonderful. Thank this you. is really cool. It's very informative. I enjoy like listening to people talk. Like you're informal. Like it is. It's you know people coming in. They are comfortable. This is literally set up like a therapist as someone who's actually had therapy. Like actually talk to their. It's totally like get comfortable on the couch. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? <laughs> Explore yeah. that. Like it's great. But it's so. also funny because uh, I I look at you know, my journey. And I think that one of the reasons why I've done well personally, yeah. mentally is because I get to have these great conversations. So it's a two way therapy. Absolutely. You get to share thoughts, you see things in a different way. Mm-hmm. People say things and you're like, man, that's deep in other ways. And you're like, okay, yep, I knew they were nuts. So it's <laughs> great. It's like, it's pretty cool. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you letting me hang out here with your dog too. get a little dog therapy since my little doggies went went away. Yes. It's like I've been inviting I've been inviting myself to people's houses like, hey, so I was going to come over and watch TV at your house and hang out with your dog this weekend. They're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, but it's nice. It's really and I'll house it for you anytime as long as you leave the dog. I will. <laughs> <laughs>